Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. Again, it's one of those stories being in the right place at the right time and saying yes to the thing that you're not so sure you can do, which I think is a big life lesson. Just say yes to the thing that you're not so sure you can do and figure it out. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, we have three classic conversations with three distinct voices working at the New York Times food desk, columnists Melissa Clark and editors Genevieve Coe and Emily Weinstein. The New York Times is truly at the top of their game, and it was so fun to speak with three journalists I respect so deeply. I hope you enjoy these conversations. We have a lot to cover. I, I love hearing your voice on Splendid Table. I love reading your cookbooks. I love cooking from your work in the New York Times. But it's just so nice to see you. It's so nice to see you too, Matt. It's just so rare that we get to see each other these days. And it's just it's very comforting to be in the same room just sitting right across and having a conversation like normal people, right? Not on Zoom. Not on <laughs> Zoom. There's no buffering. There's no pixelating. You know, we, we're here IRL. Let's start with sheep pan harissa chicken with leeks, potatoes, and lemon yogurt showered with herbs. This is a recipe that appeared on page 51 of your 2017 book, Dinner, Changing the Game. For me, this is honestly the recipe that I brought most to dinner parties. I brought it in gallon bags to dinner parties. Like, not really like dinner parties, but like when I'm helping cook. Mm -hmm. I've given it for gifts. I've gifted people who are ill or who needed food the, a bag of this harissa chicken. I've made it at home in several kitchens. Homes I've had, many homes, whatever. This is like my favorite recipe. It's on the cover of that book. Can we just like do like an oral history of it right now? Absolutely. I, but first of all, thank you. I'm glad. I mean, it's a great. I love that recipe too. I'm so happy to hear that it's a hit with your with with your whole you know everybody in your yeah. life as well. Um, so okay. So how did it start? You know, chicken and potatoes, right? Chicken and potatoes. It's just one of those um, combinations that you want it. You always want to eat that. It, it never gets old. It's always delicious. Um, I. I'm always looking for ways to tweak the classic way of, of making a whole roast chicken, you know, with potatoes on the bottom of the pan, which is how I grew up eating them, right? So you have to, you do it. It's this easy, um, one, it wasn't a one sheet pan dinner back then. It was just like a roasting pan dinner. Mm-hmm. And my mother always did the carrots, potatoes, onions in the bottom of the- The drippings arrive. Exactly. Yeah. And then you put the chicken on top. So that's that just is the foundation of this dish, is that combination. But- um, since I've fell in, fallen in love with my sheet pan, as everybody knows, I love a sheet pan. They have changed my life. I find the, just the way that they um, conduct heat makes food just so delicious. There's so much more caramelization than you get in a typical roasting pan, which has deep sides. So I started um, playing around with the different combinations of chicken and potatoes on a sheet pan. And I did this recipe for the New York Times. I did an yeah. early iteration um, a couple of years before 
dinner the dinner cookbook came out mm. and it was a simplified version it was well actually it was i think it was not simplified i think it was a little more complicated, actually. I think I for the harissa chicken and dinner, I've streamlined it. I can't really remember. Did you have the lemony yogurt element? I don't think I had lemon yogurt. I think I just had salted yogurt. Yeah. And I had arugula on top. And I didn't. And so it was a slightly different dish. And it was a little fussier. And often what I'll do is the way that I write cookbooks, part of my process, is that um, for my column in the New York Times, I'll, I have a few weeks to develop a recipe, right? So I, I develop it up to a certain point. It's great. Sometimes it's perfect. Sometimes mm, no it, notes. Well, yes, um, <laughs> but sometimes it's like, okay, you know what? This could be better. And with the case of that arugula potato chicken in the New York Times with the yogurt, it I, it needed a little more tweaking. And then that is what I published in dinner, and I feel like that's when I nailed the dish. You know, that's the thing about working under deadline, right? When you're when you're a writer and you're you're yeah. a recipe developer, you're working under deadline. You get it as good as you can get it up until your deadline, and then you have to stop. You have to cut base. Sometimes it's eighty five percent. Exactly. Yeah, and you have to do it. Yeah. But the thing about a cookbook is, then I can just push it to the next fifteen percent and get it. Perfect. So I mean, that's what fingerling happened. was the best choice possible for that. Yeah, and I think I didn't use that for mm. the other one. I don't remember. I should look at that recipe again. I should have looked at it before uh, before I sat down here. But I know that it's um, so. That's how it happened. That was the the process. And um, it's a dish. Even, I still I never cook for my own recipes. Never, except mm. for that recipe and my red oh. lent, and my red lentil soup. Those are the two that you will actually, you know, bring to the family when you're not developing. You'll bring like, oh, bring in an old classic. Yeah, those are two. Um, ah. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I cook a ton. Obviously, I cook every night. I'm always, I rarely follow recipes. I'm just cooking. Yeah. But those two I follow because I just like them. Yeah, <laughs> I like them the I way it. they are. I'm glad we share that love of Melissa Clark recipe. <laughs> 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 Let's zoom back a bit. You grew up in Brooklyn. I want to know a little bit about your household growing up. What was food like in the Clark household? My parents were great cooks. They were um, Julia Child disciples. They uh, they loved to cook. And, um, you know, the food, they cooked a lot for dinner parties. They cooked a lot of French, fancy French food for dinner parties. I got some of that food as leftovers, you know, the next day. <laughs> um, but really what I loved, I loved just the simple dinners that they, they cooked really simply during yeah. the week, but it was always fresh. It was always good. There were no cans of soup in my house, um, unless we ate a can of soup, which was perfectly fine. But yeah. we, they didn't do like my mom, my parents, um, my mother, my grandmother was big into like convenience foods, big into, you know, mm. sort of 1950s yeah. housewife. Like she did a lot of jello and she did a lot of, you know. As was like the rage then. Yeah. And you had to be in trends. So you're obviously cooking from boxes because it was the first time any home cooks were getting boxes. Exactly. Yeah. Like this quick to her was you know, yeah. um, but my mother, so my mother didn't want to do that. And so she was very, it was a pointed departure for her and for, and my father, of course, um, grew up in a kosher home. Mm. So it was a little bit different, but he never, he never started cooking until ju- the whole Julia Child thing. He and, and then he and my mom started cooking together and he started baking bread and she would cook the savory foods. And it was just I mean, really simple things, but really fresh. It was, um, you know, it was just like simple steak, but we'd always have this. I remember when I was a kid, and this was in the early 90s, we -hmm. had watercress salads all the time. Like, who (laughs) had watercress salads back then? You know, and they, and so. So French. Yes. It's clearly showing. Did you, did they, did your parents go to, like, did they have go to cooking classes? No. No. I mean, I think they just watched. They watched, they watched a lot it. of like programming. You know, they watched Galloping Gourmet, and they watched oh Julia the Child, and they watched. Yeah, they watched all of that. I love that. Um, and you know, my dad would um, was learning. We had a walk, and he was learning how to make some stir fried, um, like stir fried 
stir frying and bread baking were his two mm. things. Um, so, but it was just always fresh, and that and it's an important lesson. And then on Saturday, on Sundays, we had bagels and lox. <laughs> What neighborhood were you in? Um, so it was called Flatbush when I was growing up. Yeah. You know, much to my great embarrassment. But now it's <laughs> rebranded itself as Dimas. Oh, okay. Dimas Park. So yeah, it was called Flatbush. A very Jewish neighborhood, though, right? Yeah, yeah very. Very Jewish. And those locks and bagels are probably the best in the country, you'd say? They from were. New York? I mean, you know, like your childhood nostalgia, bagels and locks taste better than anything you could get now. But <laughs> I mean, I still am. I don't know if they're better than what you can get now. I feel like Russ and Daughter still does it for me. Yeah, I agree. Do, do you do you subscribe to uh, there being a bagel outside of a New York City bagel? Uh, you know, I keep reading about those California bagels. They say. I, I have not been. I have not. I but you know what? I'm open to it. I'm open. I I'll eat a delicious bagel from anywhere. Yeah, me too. So I have to ask you, Melissa. There was a time when you were working at a restaurant front of house. And you were working with a young coat check employee named Mariah Carey. Ah, yes, the Mariah Carey story. So I was in college. I was at Barnard. And I got a, re- a job as a, um, a hostess at a restaurant called Sports. It was a sports bar in the Upper That's West Side. That's called yes, Sports. Yes, Sports. And let's just put it this way. Um, when I got the job, I didn't know it was a sports bar. They told me it was a continental restaurant. It hadn't. It was in the middle of construction. I applied for this job. I got it, and I met you know the chef, and I was interested in food and restaurants. Continental restaurant. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> then I found out it was a sports bar. So that was that was a thing. And it was a, a bi-level restaurant. So there was an upstairs. So as a hostess, I had to take people to tables running up and down the stairs all night long. This was my job. The phones were always ringing. And there was a coat checker named Mariah, um, who was just Mariah before she was Mariah Carey, you know, to me. And I would, I would always say, you know, I'd be running up and down. I'd be like, Mariah, can you just answer the phone? Can you help me out? Can you? And she had, she used to like, you know, she'd have her her headphones on plugged into her Walkman way back when. She'd be sitting there singing. Oh my be, goodness! And it's just like she was like sort of half in the world and half in her own head and her in her music and her songs even back then. But I would get really annoyed because I'd be <laughs> like, the phone is ringing. Yeah. Um, but my boyfriend at the time worked at a sport at a non-sports bar, just a bar next door, and he was a singer-songwriter. And he said to me, he said, "Oh, you know, Mariah's got an amazing voice. Do you think you could give her my tape of my my music?" I was like, "No." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I regret oh, that. Sorry. You regret that. Sorry, yeah, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Oh buddy. my gosh. And have you interacted with her? No, of course not. <laughs> You've not. I want. I feel like that reunion needs to happen. I don't know. That was a many, a long time many, ago. many years ago. And honestly, she really was like at that point so into her music. And I don't know that she would. You know, like but, I knew her because I wanted something from her. But yeah. I don't know that she. <laughs> Let's talk about a cooking class. I mean, sorry, a food writing class that you took um, early in your career. And it, 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 did this kind of jumpstart your interest in food writing, this class that you took? Yeah. I mean, so, okay, this was, I was, I always knew I wanted to be a writer ever sure. since I was a kid. I was writing stories and it was a, something that I, I, I just thought, well, you know, except for that brief moment in high school when I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, which mm. very... L.A. Law, were you watching some TV? And like, no, I just was like, I just thought like I was good at debating. I was good at arguing. And so my mother was like, oh, you should be a lawyer. Mm. I was like, okay. And you know when your mom says that to you and you're like, oh, yeah, okay, I can do that. Um, <laughs> but then I discovered writing and I thought I was going to um, – I didn't know what I was going to write, but food was always the metaphor I used to tell my story, no matter what. So uh. if I was writing about, you know, like in college, I'd write papers about early modern European history, but somehow I would find the food angle. Or I remember yes. I wrote this my thesis on um, Don Quixote, and I wrote about um, the food, uh, Sancho Panza, and what he ate the whole during the whole, wow. you know, novel. So I was always looking for this the food angle, um, and. 
it, it, I took this food writing class with Betty Fussell, who's a very famous, she was um, a very famous food writer. I don't know if people know her as well. Right Glad now. you mentioned Betty Fussell. It's cool because she is definitely a legend. She's a legend. If, if you know um, food writing, you've probably read Betty Fussell. She is a brilliant, intellectual, gifted storyteller. Um, and she came and taught this food writing class. And it, I was her star pupil. Because yeah. it was just, we spoke the same language. We used the same metaphors. We looked at the world in the same way. Wow. And I thought, okay, well, this is obviously what I want to do because this is just how, you know, it's, it's amazing when you can find a career that already aligns with how you see the world. It's amazing when you unlock that. It's like a key in the lock. Is there an assignment that you recall from Betty's class that made you really think, oh, this could be a career? Um, well, I remember that we had to do a, like a restaurant review of our Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, so taking that point of view, so, the, the reviewer. Well, we, yeah, well, we had all, we had all kinds of different assignments. You know, we did Fun. different genres of food writing, but that was one. And I thought, so I, I really liked, I, what I liked is deconstructing. I like to take a minute and deconstruct the meal and think about how was it put together and why did we make the choices that we made for this Thanksgiving meal? So it was a lot of context. Uh, and then there was, you know, one of day she brought in this chocolate cake. And I do this, I've, I've done this with my students. I've taught at Columbia, I've taught some food writing classes at Columbia, and I've done this with my students. Um, although it doesn't work anymore because now they all know the secret. But she brought in this chocolate cake and we had to guess the secret ingredient. And I knew immediately that it was mayonnaise. And I knew that because um, I had read about a mayonnaise cake, and I had re- I'd never had one, but it fit the description of what I had read. And she said there was a secret ingredient, something normally not found in cakes. So I put two and two together. And that was also so thrilling to get that right. Yeah, you were like the—you raised your hand and got the right answer. Yeah, I was like, oh, I know this. I, I, I'm there. I'm there. But it, and it was also—well, I mean, so what it was, it was being able to taste it, being able to identify something, being able to fit a description to a dish, but also understanding the context and the history behind it. So yeah. all of that coming together— was just like, oh my god, I totally want to do this all the time. <laughs> does is it does mayonnaise add um, a moisture to the, the actual cake? Does it add like is it more of a texture? Well, so it's a depression era recipe when you couldn't necessarily get fresh eggs and oil, right. but mayonnaise was something was something that was cheaper for whatever reason. And so you the you know mayonnaise is an emulsion of eggs and oil. So if you use that in your cake, you don't need to add the eggs and the oil. So it's just a great. It's like a substitution. It's a great yeah. And I mean, it makes a re- it's also easy. I mean, it makes a really good cake. Plus, you know what? It has a lot of salt. And it yeah. turns out when you add a lot of salt to a chocolate cake, it's good. No doubt. <laughs> and so this, uh, we're going to skip some of your career because we have, I want to talk about Dinner and One and, and some of your cookbook writing career. But I would like to talk about your collaboration because you started out as a collaborator working with Boulou, with Boulet, Claudia Fleming, many others. Let me ask you. How did you get into the world of of translating recipes from chefs? It was all, you know, being in the right place at the right time. Someone came to me and said, hey, do you want to write a cookbook with Sylvia Woods from Sylvia up in Harlem? Wow. That was the, that was the first. That was the first collaboration I ever did. And um, I had done a few little cookbooks before that, but I had never done a collaboration. And a friend of mine was working with Sylvia, doing some, some consulting, and they had a cookbook draft that she, that was competent, but it wasn't. She's like, there was no voice there. Mm. And so she said, you know, you're a writer. Can you voice this up? And so I spent, um, you know, six months. I was living in Brooklyn. I would go take the train up to Harlem, and I would I talked to um, Sylvia and her whole family, her amazing people. I tape recorded everything. Mm. And as I was transcribing, I got their voices in my head and, and just created, um, just wrote, you know, what they said, but 
polished it and condensed it. And it was so great because I learned so much. I mean, not just about, you know, her recipes, which I learned, you know, I learned about the food, but I also learned about her childhood and I learned about um, everything that she had to do to get to where she was, you know, her background. And being inside her head and yeah. really, really hearing her was so exciting to get, you know, you get really close to another person in, in a short way. Um, yeah. And I, I love that. And I thought, well, okay, I, this is what I want to do because I love character. I love building characters. I love trying to understand what makes people tick. Uh, I would like to say that both of my parents are psychiatrists. <laughs> so that was sort of like, it's like that family. A I mean, child it's like of in two there. psychiatrists. I am. Yes, yeah. that is true. Um, and, I, and I also love to understand, you know, there's so much more. When you create a recipe, when you write a cookbook, when you open a restaurant, you know, you're giving so much of yourself in different ways. Yeah. And to be able to put that together um, – it was. It's. It is still so. It is the one thing about working at the New York Times that I miss is that I cannot. I'm not allowed to do that. You know because I objectivity. Report. Yeah, I report yeah. in the industry, so obviously I can't do. do that. And I. That's the thing I miss the most. Yeah, I want to get into some of your reporting because I think some of our listeners may only know you as a recipe developer, and you know, write you write nice head notes, but you have a real like journalistic background, and you have you write, you've written some wonderful journalism. How many cookbooks have you done at this point? Um, forty six. Forty six. Wow. Yeah, forty six. That's I had forty one, so forty six is the right answer. Um, let's just go top three. Let's just do it. Of top my three. cookbooks. Yeah, let's just do it. Top three. Um, I mean, dinner in French it, because it's so yes. personal. Yeah, it's a great book. Twenty nineteen. Um, twenty twenty twenty. Twenty twenty. Yeah, March twenty twenty. As a oh. matter of fact, remember what else happened then? Oh yeah, wonderful. <laughs> Must have been cool to put that book out then. Yeah, that was. There was a lot of people say, "Oh, you know, your book party was the last thing I did before lockdown." Dinner in French, right. So dinner in French, um, talk about that a bit. Yeah, so that was my, you know, my childhood was being the daughter of two psychiatrists. My parents had the month of August off because traditionally psychiatrists took the month of August off. Why this was a tradition, I don't know. Thank goodness they don't do that anymore, that people, they stagger their vacation so that yeah. if you have a mental breakdown in August, you don't have to worry. You know, yeah. you'll find somebody. But back Summer's then, tough, man. Summer's you tough. You need help. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's hot. You get yeah. grouchy. But um so we would ha- so they both had this whole month off and we would house exchange in France. We would exchange our Brooklyn Dittmas house <laughs> and go all over the country and stay in different people's houses and uh, and cook and eat. And so, you know, my parents, um, we, I mean, they cooked during the year, but they didn't cook a lot. And we didn't we never ate dinner together. Like, I mean, they cooked a lot, but my mother would leave the food for us mm. on a hot. We had this hot tray and she and my dad worked late. So my sister and I ate a lot, you know, by ourselves in front of the TV, and um, which was fine with me as a kid. You know, I was like, oh, I get to watch TV when I eat. But um, being in France, we ate together, and it was something – and we cooked together. And it was the only time in my childhood that we did that as a family, and that was really meaningful. And so to be able to write about that experience and in this book – and I always say that – I, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn. I learned how to cook in France. Right. And and you were th- living th- throughout the country, right, in different places? In different places, yeah. yeah. That's right. Uh, and aside, are you going to France this summer? We are not going to France this summer. In August, taking the month off. You know, we never do that. <laughs> I've never done that in my life. Wait, that, really? 
Except okay. when I was a kid. No, yeah, I haven't. Yeah. Well, first of all, I can't get a month off. No, of course. You're on deadline the whole time when we get to that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but we're taking two weeks and going to Italy or a week and a half and going to Italy. Oh, very fun. Yeah. Okay. So book two, number two, what's number two of your, oh, I'm doing top three most um, books by Miss Melissa. I mean, I do. I love dinner. I mean, I love, you okay. know, dinner changing the game. You know, that was that book I poured myself into. That is the food that I love cooking. It was so it was just so fun to write down all the things, all the things that I had been making. And, and um, also, you know, the challenge of that book was the idea behind Dinner Changing the Game is that these are familiar dishes and I'm going to put a twist on them, but I'm also going to streamline them, yeah. you know, and I'm going to make them simple because I want to be able to get people to cook maybe a little more than they might want to, but the result is so worth it. So it has, it just had to be worth it in the end. So so well said. I mean, it, it's why I love that book so much and why it's really splattered and stained because I, I think it is very, very tightly written and the like ingredient lists are not demanding. I think you're doing something that's very difficult, making it seem it's, it is easy, but it's actually interesting to cook. So yeah, yeah uh, that's the goal. That's the goal. And then the third, gosh, I mean, I have to say dinner in one, which is about to come out. I yeah. mean, I mean, I mean, Claudia Fleming, you know, the last chorus is very, very special to me. That one. that one is very special to me, too. But I mean, I think of that more as her book, not my book. And we just got that back into into print, which is yeah. cool. It was out of print. We have a great story that was uh, on taste that I'll link to about the, that book's long history. But one of the classics in American pastry books. Yeah. And it's a brilliant book. And Claudia is a brilliant wonderful human being. But I don't think of that as my book. That's her book. So even though it, like I'm counting it in my 45, it's yeah. not like so many of the books I co-authored. Um, I mean, I've co-authored over two dozen books. Yeah. So half of them are co-authored books. So, but the, yeah, so they're not my books. Is there a collaboration that got away, meaning you really wanted to work on it, but you couldn't? Early on, Alfred Portali did not pick me to write his cookbook. Uh, oh, wow. So there was that. But um, no, for the most part, for the most part, I I got the cookbooks that I went for, you know, yeah. it early for the collaborations. So you remember the ones you just didn't get. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, oh, Alfred Portelli. Alfred Portelli. His no. loss. You know? <laughs> um, let's talk about the Dinner In series because you've got Dinner In French, Dinner In an Instant, Dinner In One, which is out soon. So where does this Dinner In series go and what does it represent? It represents getting dinner on the table as easily and deliciously as possible. Cool. And all of those books have that. That's the goal, right? Um, so dinner in French, you know it's going to be a little more um, special occasion, just a little bit more because, you know, you think of, of French food. But what, I mean, really my goal with dinner in French was actually it's special occasion just because we don't think of French food as something that French people eat every single night for dinner, but they do. So that was really <laughs> that, the goal with that. Um Dinner in an instant. So I didn't think I was going to ever like instant pots. I'm not a gadget person, mm -hmm. but I wrote about instant pots for the New York Times. I reported a piece and I really fell in love. It was with like them. 2017. It was early. It right? was early. Yeah. And I just love I was like, wow, this thing is amazing. Yeah. And I'd always used pressure cookers. But yeah. every time I used a, a stovetop pressure cooker, I was a little afraid. And I think many people share that feel, you know, the worry of like the pea soup on the ceiling. Like, you know, you hear yeah. the stories, right? Terrible stories. Yeah, yeah. burns of the third degree. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, but I love the efficiency and I love, um, I like the set it and let it cook aspect of it. So I really went hard, um, fell hard for my Instant Pot. So dinner in an instant um, and comfort in an instant are 
showcasing my love of the Instant Pot. Uh, and they're recipes that, again, like you can make this for dinner. Mm-hmm. And I, so, okay, so why dinner? Why is the dinner this important concept? Is because that's when we cook. Like we don't cook lunch. We put together lunch. We throw together lunch. We yeah. make lunch. You know, maybe on a weekend we'll cook breakfast. But what do we have to cook every night? It's yeah. dinner. And dinner is the central thing for in all of our lives. It is, for some people— me included. It is the joy of our day. Every day I, in dinner, um, changing the game, I write that making dinner every night is like my weekend. That's my little bit of weekend on a weekday because so I well love said. it. It really is. It's that moment where you can really just uh, escape all the other deadlines and pressures and, yeah. and actually decompress. I think of cooking that way. It's not always that way, though. It's sometimes it can be a little bit stressful, but yeah. you do it enough, you feel like it is a, a bit of a relief, right? Well, I mean, I think if you love to cook, then yeah. most of the time it's going to be. But if you don't love to cook, and there is a lot of people out there who don't love to cook, but they still have to get dinner on the table mm-hmm. and they think of dinner as a problem. And so what I want to help them with is I'm solving your problem for you. I just t- tapped on the table and you told me not to. Oh, Sorry. you know what? Tapping on the table is, is, <laughs> is okay if it's you and it's very light. You know, I didn't hear it. So you're good. So let's, uh, where does it go? Where does this actual, this series go? Oh, I don't know. You think I think ahead? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> what about a book then that is not home cooking and is more journalistic third person writing about something happening. You've written, you wrote this beautiful profile of Claudia Rodin. You wrote this beautiful story about uh, sustainable seafood in, in, I believe, in Maine, mm-hmm. oysters. So you're you're a reporter, and I, I really think that our listeners should should actually look at Melissa Clark's reporting and be like, top notch. I mean, you probably don't have time to do a lot of it with your other demands, but would you write a cookbook where you actually report on something? Um, Not, it's not top priority right yeah. now. I don't Honest know that, answer. I mean, I don't know that I have a subject that I'd want to immerse myself in for that long. I mean, the beauty of writing a reported article for the Times is that I get to immerse myself for a month, you know, yeah. or maybe like over the course of two or three months, but not full, full on, you know, like I dip my toes in and I love learning new things and I love learning about other people and what they're doing and mm-hmm. what they're cooking. And um, so that's th- reporting to me is thrilling. But I also like the brief scope of it. And to write a reported book is a commitment that is years long, a a dedication that um, I don't see myself wanting, I mean, in the near future. Maybe it's going to change. You know, people change all the time. And maybe I'll find something where I think, okay, I need to pursue this story. And here I am. But not right now. But articles are the beauty. I mean, this is the beauty of articles. You you, you get to dive into this world but not have to commit like 80,000 words. And we had Julia Moskin on the podcast in 2018. And I want to ask you the same question is, do you have a long list of features that you're working on? Is it always in motion? It is always in motion. I'm always working on things. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, no, I'm thinking about a lot of different things. And so... What are you thinking about? Give us a teaser. Um, okay, so I'm working on a big salt piece. Amazing. Because I think that we still don't understand salt, even though, you know, we we have written about it. Um, many people have written about it. I mean, of course, Samin's amazing. You know, salt, fat, acid, heat takes on salt in a big way. But there's still questions about how, like, basic questions um, that aren't answered. Like, why... Are there different kinds of kosher salt? Why are there different, you know, um, textures? Why? How is sea salt made? Do you know how sea salt is made? Do you know how the crystals are formed? Right. Like, this is the stuff that I don't know that I'm fascinated by. So I want to go in depth and write about that. Um, And so it'll be... Uh, and also a little history of salt. I mean, we know about, you know, the word salary um, comes from the word salt. We Salt is just a very rich topic to... um, 
to again immerse myself in for a few weeks, for a few months. It's and then, so great and, to do that, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, there are a lot of books written on it, so one could write eighty thousand words on it, but I don't have to. I can write twenty five hundred words and it or three thousand maybe, and it's going to be. Um, I think it's going to be interesting and doable for me in a few months. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. I mean, Morton's versus Diamond Crystal, and like choosing the right one is such a topic of conversation always. It's perennial. And why yeah. can't you get Diamond Crystal ever? Why is Morton's – why does Morton's have the, you know, the the monopoly on salt? It's such a uh, – Diamond – I'm Diamond Crystal all the way and I buy that on Amazon because sometimes you cannot find it you in stores. You cannot find it in stores, yeah. Yeah. I'm. I'm I, so why is that, Matt? I'm going to find out. Yeah. I'm going to get to the bottom of that. Yeah. I remember <laughs> once – you, did you – do you remember when there was like a shortage of Diamond Crystal when it was like – on Twitter, that yes. Diamond Crystal was going out of yeah, business. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> so, what else is on your list? Give us one more feature. Okay, so this is exciting too. So, I'm very interested in sustainable. It all issues of sustainability in food, but yeah. particularly sustainable seafood, because. Yeah. Um, why am I so interested in sustainable seafood? You know, it's just it's you know when you start researching something and you're like, oh my god, but there's more, and yeah. yet there's more. Um, I feel like. The way that we eat out of the ocean obviously is not sustainable. The way we misuse the ocean is not sustainable. But yet seafood could be a big part of our diets. It could feed much more of the world if we change the way that we produce it, right? So one of the things that's on the horizon is land-based aquaculture. So aquaculture is hugely problematic, especially salmon aquaculture. Much maligned in the press. Farm-raised, you just never really want to eat that food, exactly. eat that version of fish. But there's, yeah. but that's what we are, we are going to have no choice because exactly. there is not going to be a wild ocean that we can sustainably fish from, right? So we have to have aquaculture. But how do you do it sustainably? I've written about scallops. I've written about shellfish and oysters and mussels. And um, but they're, those are still in the ocean, but they're very sustainable. But what about big fish? What about salmon? What about other types of um, aquaculture? So there is a movement to, and shrimp actually is a big issue here. So there's been a lot of people developing basically giant fish tanks full of fish. So how do you do that in a sustainable way? And there's new technology that is helping um, uh, helping fish farmers create sustainable, energy-efficient ways it's to— It's so fascinating. There's a guy so up in Newburgh, New York, doing some cool sustainable seafood in, called Gulo, I think. Oh, okay. Doing, sh- doing shrimp up there. There's a bunch of shrimp because yeah. shrimp, is, shrimp are really easy to do exactly. that way. Exactly. Love that. The problem is the um, the waste. So anyway, but so as you can—I'm working on this story. There are people doing it. Can you imagine doing salmon in tanks? This is happening. Yeah. It's happening in Maine. It's happening in—they're um, building it in Maine. It's happening in Florida. So— Anyway, that's I can't wait to read that because I think it's it's it is a beat. I've, as I mentioned, you had that great story about oysters recently. Let's talk about your recipe writing for The New York Times. I guess my question is, like, what's it like being on deadline basically all the time? Because you're coming out every week with a recipe. What is that feeling like? I compartmentalize so well. It's like when I'm <laughs> under deadline, I'm like freaking out because I'm under deadline. Right. But that's only a f- few days a week. And then the other few days a week. What deadline? Yeah. It's, what I can't, deadline? Yeah. If I didn't compartmentalize, I could not have this job. Does it make vacation like worth it when you're on those like weekly deadlines? Um, a little more? I'm always working though. Even when I'm on vacation, I'm like, I can't stop. Like in a yeah. way. It, but it's okay because I like my work. But I love not having the deadline. I mean, when I don't have a deadline, um, when I'm on vacation and I don't have to file. So that little, you know, I say I compartmentalize, right? So the little bit of my life where I'm not under deadline because in my head I'm not becomes longer. 
does that get you out of bed though? Just like knowing you have work to do and this exciting job because you, you have a real passion and love of cooking. Yes. Does it get you out of bed every day? Well, I get out of bed every day early anyway because I just can't sleep past 6.30. I don't know what happened. Uh, age, I can't sleep yeah. past 6. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I get up. I, 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 it is great. It is great. But um, and also I I don't know if you can tell, but um, I'm it, I'm a, I'm an active person. Like I, I I'm anxious. I'm active. I move a lot. Yeah. So it's just like lying in bed and I can't do it. My whole body rebels. Let's talk about The New York Times. How did you arrive there? How did you how did you start your column? Like what, what's the path to The New York Times? Again, it's one of those stories being in the right place at the right time and saying yes to the thing that yeah. you're not so sure you can do, which I think is a big life lesson. Just say yes to the thing that you're not so sure you can do and figure it out. Um, and that's what I did. I um, I knew a – I mean it's a, a, my, a friend of mine was working for um, the former editor of – if this was even before there was a dining section. Mm. There was a living section in the New York Times. Um, and she was working for one of the editors in the living section, helping him write a cookbook with Pierre Frenet, who used to be a columnist. And he wrote a column called The 60 Minute Gourmet. We wrote Gourmet. a beautiful story about Pierre Frenet. Oh, I'll link to it. Amazing. Yeah. yeah I want to – oh, gosh, I missed that story. Yeah, yeah. I'll send it to you. It's great. Yeah. Um, and so Rick, this uh, man named Rick Flast, he was an editor. He was working on Pierre's book, and my friend Anna was his assistant. And she got it because of someone she knew. And then she went to India for three weeks and said, do you want to you know, take my job while I'm gone? And so I met Rick, and I took her job while she was gone. And then a few years later, Rick started the dining section and called me and asked me if I would like to freelance a little column, just like a little Q&A um, called the food chain, and this was before it was easy. You know, before this was pre WikiHow. Like you couldn't. Uh, Nineteen ninety eight. I looked yeah. back at those yeah. food chain stories last night when I was prepping for this, and it's like cool shit. It's like definitely really pertinent, pressing questions you answer. Yeah. yeah. So people would ask me food questions, and yeah. I, I would. They'd actually write letters, like physical mm-hmm. letters, and they'd put a stamp on it, and they'd mail it in a mailbox, and I would open them up. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. And so that's how I started. And then um, editors came and went. Um, And then in 2012, Susan Edgerly was the then editor of the dining section. And she um, asked me to come on staff. Okay. And so then that's what really kicked off the, the column. Well, the column actually was a little bit before that. So I was freelancing from 1998 to 2007 was my first column. Interesting. Wow. But it's been like an on, it's like probably the longest running food column in New York Times. I think Pierre Frenet might be longer. Oh, might know. be longer. Okay. I, actually, good question. I should ask. Um, I think I am longer than Mark Bittman at this point. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this constant deadline we discussed, but I guess, can we get into like how you actually, ha- you know, organize your thoughts for these recipes every week? Because they really, they come fast. And like anyone who's developed a recipe knows or has cooked a lot, it's like very hard to nail a recipe. Are you working on like 10 recipes at the same time? Absolutely. Yeah. You cannot. If I worked week to week, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. Right. The trick is to always be, to have things in motion all the time. Um, So the first thing I do is, you know, to have a conversation with my editor and we figure out what is the right thing at the right time? Because timing of a recipe is really important. You know, you don't want to do a fresh peach recipe in January. You want to be where people are. You want to do cozy things in the winter summary things. Mm -hmm. In the summer, sometimes I work a year ahead. I just had a recipe for a sheet pan chicken, of course, with (laughs) sour cherries. And I did that recipe 
July 2021 when I could get sour cherries, knowing that you can't develop a sour cherry recipe in the same year because the season is so fleeting. So last year I thought, what am I going to do, you know, next year? Um, I should have done it again. I should have done another sour cherry recipe this year, but I did. Yeah, what what, what are you looking at for 23 right now? Is there something in the hopper? You know, um, I should be actually. I should be. You know, what are the really seasonal? Most things you can get. It's funny. Sour, fresh sour cherries yeah. are a rare thing that you can't get. Um, like rhubarb for a while was really. Now you can get forced hothouse rhubarb pretty much all year long. Yeah, you long. can find those in you can uh, find specialty it. stores or expensive stores. But yeah. yeah, I used to do that with rhubarb. I do rhubarb recipes a year ahead. Yeah. Um, like corn, you can get. You can definitely get corn, even if it's not so great. You can get tomatoes. So it's really only a few ingredients. Are you at the. Uh, Grand Army Farmer's Market quite a bit? As often as I can go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, I'm always working on several recipes at the same time. And um, they're what I eat for dinner. And sometimes I'll think, oh, my God, this is like I'll just be cooking something, you know, from whatever yeah. I have. You know, yeah, you just buy stuff and then you cook it. Mm-hmm. And if it tastes good, I write it down. I'm like, okay, idea for recipe. And then that becomes a starting point of a recipe testing process, which then takes a minimum of three times but can often take like, you know, 15 times. Yeah. Is there like a product that you've really been dwelling on recently? I mean, I, I, I think about like Impossible Burger had its moment like 18 months ago where everyone was like talking about Impossible, this and that. Is there something like right now that's on your mind? A product? Yeah, like a product or or some kind of or a condiment. Yeah. Okay. I'm obsessed with this new condiment. This is really funny. So um, a friend of mine represents this. Uh, it's How do I describe it? It's like a vegan fish sauce. It's called Yondo. Yeah, cool. Do you know it? I, I know, I know, I know the category though, and I know it's in a very emerging category. It's it's like pure umami. It's yeah. just it's like liquid. I mean, it's basically like I mean, I think fish sauce adds so much umami. I love to use it in non traditional ways, and this is a vegan version. It's just vegetarian. It doesn't have, and it's it's. Um, I don't know if it's yeast extracts. The same way that I love nutritional yeast. Oh, it's, I love nooch so much. Yeah, it's a great. Product. It's that same. Just savoriness. So I got add a, it to everything now. <laughs> I love it. I got a uh, mushroom-based fish sauce from the Noma Crew. They sent me a bottle of that. And I think so it's mushroom-based, the ones I've had. That Yeah, I mean, I think that – so, okay, so I guess the category would be vegan fish sauce like or just enhancers. I mean, and again um, – there's no reason for it to be like, I mean, I'm happy to use fish sauce, but sometimes you don't want that slight seafood flavor. Like you just want a cleaner yeah. umami. And it's it's just amazing. I made a green beans. Um, I was cooking just green beans with a, you know, garlic dressing, a little rice vinegar, which I make all the time. Yeah. I just added a few drops of it and it just transformed it into, as my daughter said, she's like, I still don't <laughs> like green beans, but these are the best green beans I've ever had. <laughs> Is your daughter uh, a cook? Does she does she want to follow in your footsteps a little? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, cool. But she does make the, our family salad. I've been training her since oh. she was eight, and so now she is she knows how to make our every night salad. Ah, so is it a vinegar based uh, dressing or a, a lemon citrus based? A lemon, yeah. So you know she does it. Sometimes when I do it, I'll add garlic because I like garlic in the dressing. But when she does it, she does just lemon, olive oil, salt, and pepper tossed mm. right in the bowl with her hands. And it's and she's got it. it. She's got it perfect. Does she know Absolutely. how to clean the wash the greens too? <sighs> no, we're working on that. <laughs> <laughs> the worst part about the salads. The worst part about the salad. <laughs> I, I wrote in one of my cookbooks. I can't remember which one. I was like, if you ever want to be a really good house guest when someone invites you to stay, wash all their salad greens. It's and put them in the fridge. <laughs> 
so it, yeah, put them in the fridge and then bring them out and like, bring them out at the right time and be like in charge of the greens. Yes, so helpful. So helpful. Usually guests are not helpful. They're, they're, they're nice people, the guests, but they're not helpful. Well, you know, you want to have somebody to chat with while you're drinking wine and making dinner. So that's what they're, that's they're, their they're job. moral support. Okay, so dinner in one. Um, I've had it for a little while, and it's been so great. Like, I really, I made the caramelized carrots with pancetta, which is like a main that I brought out. And people are like, wow, like carrots for mains. Like, not really my normal jam, but mm-hmm. I just really love it. Tell me, uh, this book, what's the, what's the uh, dinner in one? What does that mean? Dinner in one means dinner, like one pot meals, one pan, one skillet, one sheet pad, as you know. I love yeah, a sheet pan. Yeah. So the idea is um, I took the concept of dinner changing the game and I streamlined it even further. I made it even simpler, but I kept the basic idea of you can make dinner quickly. I mean, most of the recipes are under an hour. Mm-hmm. Many of them are under 30 minutes. So this is something that you come home from work. You don't want a lot of cleanup, but you want big flavors and you want something delicious. And so this is your this is going to be your go-to weeknight cookbook. Um, but the thing that I did in this book that I really love is that I, I mean, I, oh, so what, uh, define a, to me a one-pot meal. Like what is a one-pot meal? It needs to have your vegetables and your, your starch and your protein. It just needs to be the one thing you eat. You shouldn't uh, need to have anything else yeah. with it. Maybe a salad, especially if your kid is making the salad and then you don't have to do it, right? Yeah. So it's your one-pot meal. Um, and w- the one thing I did for every single recipe was I figured out ways to either add more vegetables, so I, a section called Veg It Up, mm-hmm. because all I, I often want to just add more veg. I want, mm-hmm. you know, my protein, but I want more spinach or tomatoes or whatever it is. So Veg It Up and then or to take the same recipe and take out the meat. And so to create a vegan version or a vegetarian version um, for as many of the recipes as I it's could. It's very modern. That's what you need to be because that's right where now. Yeah, that's yeah. where we all want it. We all want to eat more be. vegetables and less meat, right? So this is a book to show you how to do it practically. And and also you can change your mind about what, like sometimes you want to eat more meat. So it's very flexible in that way is that you're in charge. You can make it more veg or more meaty. It is up to you. Then is there a recipe that you worked on so hard that you feel like this is the one that is like the grail of the book? Like this is the one that you really sought out to achieve and it's there now. Okay, so is there a harissa chicken recipe? I'm maybe looking for that. You're looking for that, right? Yeah, I'm looking for that one. Um, I mean, there is, there is, I mean, okay. So on that note, there is a simpler chicken potatoes. So there, um, do you know this Italian chicken dish? It's like chicken, oregano, garlic, and lemon. And it's just like a, like a lot of Italian grandmas made this. Wow. It's like clams oregano, but with just chicken. chicken. Yeah. yeah. And so this is a dish that I've had many times um, in many different, you know, Italian-American houses, like, right? This roast chicken with this a ton big of garlic. Oregano. Big oregano. Yeah. Like dried oregano, right? And it's yeah. like lemon and garlic and olive oil, and it is always delicious. So I took those flavors and I um, added capers and potatoes and made it into a sheet pan meal. And it's just like so satisfying. So that is a, a similar type of flavor profile to the harissa chicken, easier. Let's not hide from big oregano. Let's not do that. I hide from big oregano? No. Oh, I Some love Some people big do. Oregano. People like don't like too much oregano. It's too Italian for them. Oh, really? Some I don't, people. I don't know those people. Yeah, those people I've never are met those people. <laughs> uh, it's a flavor. I, it's not like it's not like fennel, which is like super polarizing. But I think oregano can be quite polarizing to some palates. Interesting. I think you know. I mean, that's a whole cilantro question too. Yeah, it's just just like the, I think those big those big kind of mint based herbs. Do you dine out at all? Yeah, um, okay. but not that often. Not that often. Uh, no, we really like to eat at home. 
obviously you're always on the clock. You always have to have recipe. But let's talk about New York dining because I, I just wanted to get, uh, you know, just to give, give some shouts to any New York spots because I know a lot of our listeners like come to New York and they'll be coming in the fall, hopefully, and saying hi uh, to our wonderful city. Uh, are there restaurants that you're really loving right now? Um, well, last night we ate at Gage and Tolder in Brooklyn. Yeah. And that was, you know, that was a childhood restaurant of mine. I ate there when I grew up. And to have it just redone the way it's redone is right. so wonderful. Downtown Brooklyn. It's fantastic. It's and it's a just, cool it's spot. a steakhouse. And, you yeah. know, so I got to eat. I don't, we do not eat a lot of steak anymore. So that was a big treat. Yeah. Um, I also just recently went to King, where I hadn't been in a while in the West Village, which I love. Um, one of our neighborhood favorite places in Brooklyn is called Lalu. It's a little wine bar. It's yeah. really simple, Lalu's but just cool. delicious. God, there are so many, so many. I, I, there's, I have so much joy going to restaurants because also I need ideas. And if I don't eat out, I don't get ideas. I need to eat. I need to read cookbooks. I need to eat out. I need to, you know, just be looking for things. Um, because if I just ate my own food all the time, I would just, you know, do the same recipe. I, I try to always push the envelope and eating out is one of the you ways need, that like, I get inspiration. Boards. I do need mood boards. Yeah. Shout to Claire uh, DeBoer from, from King. I went to her place, Stissing House Upstate, and it's amazing. So I love King. Yeah. I mean, and, um, and you know, and Jess, her partner, I mean, it's just. Really good. Yep. Good calls. Okay. We've given some space and years from this thing that happened. You did a recipe, a John George recipe. You, you, you really it's his recipe and it was a guacamole with peas and you know don't need to relitigate the guacamole and peas thing but i would like to find out about when you real when did you realize president obama had actually tweeted about a recipe oh that you oh my god that was a terrible day <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't want to relive terrible things. It, it was Twitter is horrible. Twitter, it, Twitter was horrible back then. I mean, still, still is. is horrible. But I was more invested back then. So I get this call from my editor. It's like, okay, we have a problem. So the background to is that um, Jean Georges um, von Grichten, famous, fantastic chef, right, created a recipe with his sous chef at the time um, at a restaurant called ABC Cochina, which is in, you know, Union Square, right by the farmer's market. And it's farmer's market inspired Mexican cuisine. It was his personal take on it. And so one of the things that he did was added a green peas to guacamole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, why did he do it? It adds sweetness. It helps preserve the color. Yeah. So you can make it a, a little bit more in advance because you know how guacamole goes brown so quickly, right? So this gives it a brighter color. Melissa, there's so much logic to this, okay? So like let's like you think through everything. Like it's there are there's a reason to put green peas in guacamole. Absolutely. But people really, really don't want to hear about green peas in guacamole. Everybody got mad at me. And I didn't even write through it wasn't even yeah. my recipe. I reported on it. It was a reported You're story. Reporting. Don't I was report don't kill, kill the, the messenger, messenger, but yeah. yeah. That's so it. yeah, people got really mad. Um and both you know, George Bush and President Obama both uh, actually commented on it. They both tweeted. Yep. And they neither of them were fans. But I will say something about Obama's tweet. He said guacamole should only have avocado, onion and garlic. Bum, bum, bum. Guacamole doesn't usually have garlic. Yeah, come on. So very, I was like, I was like all right. All right, dude. You know, you're putting garlic in guacamole. Can I just put the peas in? <laughs> Wonderful man. Great president. Uh, garlic is a no. Raw garlic? I, he didn't say. He just said garlic. Okay. Well, so maybe garlic powder. I could see that happening. Maybe. No? I mean, you know, honestly, I'm not a purist when it comes to anything. I think if it tastes good, yeah. like, you can put a lot of things in guacamole and it wouldn't make me mad. But it's not my—I mean, here's another thing. So it's not my cuisine. So I don't—I'm not as attached. Like, how do I feel if people—how do I feel about rainbow bagels, you may ask, right? Like, yeah. the, like you know, I mean, 
I'm actually fine with rainbow bagels. I'm fine with I'm I'm fine with experimenting with any kind of food as long as it tastes good and as long as you respect the tradition. So that's you know I'm good. You can do whatever you want to the kreplach. Take the matzo ball soup and make it your own. That's fine. Yeah, put some foie gras in it or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Bacon. It's good. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I know. On that note, will you write a Jewish cookbook, like a full, like, throated Jewish cookbook? I don't think so. Um, Because, I mean, I grew up very reform. I I identify as really New York Jew. It's very specific. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I mean, of course, there's a cookbook there. There could be a cookbook there. Um, But I don't know that I want to write it. I don't know that Mm -hmm. it's... Uh, I, I, so many people have written yeah, books like that. There's so, I mean, there's so many amazing books that already do that. I don't know that I need to add to that. Uh, it's thank you for being honest about that because I, I think like you know some folks would be like, oh, I'm a, yeah, maybe yes, but I think you have a really clear vision with your book pr- projects and your program. So what what is a book that you want to work on? Well, so um, I'm working on a memoir. Okay, so great. Let's so go. So that there. is, yeah, that is something that it's. And, oh my God, it's so hard. So, <laughs> yeah, obviously it's hard, but I, I didn't think it would be quite as hard. Okay. You know, um, because I've written a lot of personal narrative before, and I've written a lot of stories before, and my column at the beginning was very personal. But this is different. This is really a different kind of thing for me. Um, so I'm struggling with that. So that's in the works, but that's going to take a while. Uh, <laughs> How much is done? I mean, I have so many words, Matt, but yeah. they're not good yet. They're not good yet. <laughs> thousands and thousands of words yeah. that need to get better. So, but, you know, writing is editing, right? Exactly. And, and stepping away from the project for weeks and, you know, doing your doing a, a great recipe and stepping back into the memoir. Exactly. Makes a lot of sense. Um, and then I'm also working on an exciting new cookbook project that I am so happy about. Great. Um, it's it's um, a big, huge um, teaching cookbook that's designed for beginners. Um, well, I mean, really people of all levels. Yeah. But what, so what I've noticed with people is that people, a lot of cooks don't have confidence to go off script, right? They follow the recipe exactly. And when they want to, you know, improvise, they're not sure where they can. They don't know the rules. They don't know which rules they can break. Right. So the next book I'm working on is every recipe is going to show, tell you which rules you can break so you can make the recipe your own. Everything from the, and and the recipes I'm choosing are the best of their kind. So I just tested, I think, 14 different banana breads. And I'm like, okay, this is my favorite banana bread, and this is why, and here's my recipe, and this is how you can then – turns out if you can change it in so many ways. And having cooked through all of them, I know exactly which ways you can do so it. So swaps and substitutions is the biggest challenge in cookbooks because it sometimes just isn't articulated. But the idea that you're breaking rules, that sinks in a little bit to, for me. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah I like it's, that. It's, and it's – um. Because you just, you know, you really have to deconstruct something and understand how it's put together. You got to look under the hood. You have to see how a recipe is put together. And so I want to show you the seams. I want to show you what you can do and what you can't do. There are certain things you can't do. Can banana bread have chocolate chips and can banana bread have lemon? Yeah, of course. It, okay. Yeah, that's all fine. But the structure, right? So the structure. So, for example, um, can I just be geeky for a minute? No, let's go. <laughs> so, the, so the structure of a banana bread, right? You have you you have a certain amount of moisture that you need, and some recipes use all bananas. Some recipes break it out and use sour cream and some bananas. Some use mm-hmm. yogurt. Some use more oil. Some use more eggs, and each one has a, you get a different, a slightly different result. So. 
first of all, you have to pick which result. You have to understand which result you're looking for. Do you like a banana bread mat that's um, really, really damp and moist on the inside, or do you prefer one that's a little cakier and lighter? For me, I'm more moist. I'm glad you're going to psychology side of this. Like your parents, this is great. You're asking these questions. But I, I, I go more moist. It might be my Midwestern upbringing. I feel like I'm just in that zone always. It could be like processed foods that I ate as a kid. I right. think I'm moist. So super damp. Definitely. Okay, so then your banana bread is the one with all the bananas. Don't yes. you? You don't need yogurt. You don't need buttermilk. You don't need. You just need all bananas because that will give you the most compact, moistest, most dense cake, mm. right? And so in my recipe, the way that I'm going to tell the story of the banana bread is. You here's you can if you want it a little lighter, then you add the, a little bit of yogurt, you know, and these are the ways you can change it or you add the sour cream um, and then the sweetness level. Like how sweet do you want it? You need a certain amount of sugar for sweetness. What's the least amount? I mean, not for sweetness, sorry, for structure. Mm-hmm. Sugar also gives structure aside from the perception of sweetness. What's the least amount you can do to achieve this structure but not have the overpowering sweetness so exactly. it feels a little bit more neutral the savory even exactly what's the least amount you can get away with but then there are people who like it on the sweeter side so just giving the range the different kinds of sugar brown sugar okay but my the trick is to give a ton of information in a streamlined easy way that is easy to digest that is not overwhelming because you i don't i also want you to just be able to be like all right can you just give me a recipe for good which is the best banana bread okay this one here then this is you follow this recipe so you have multiple prongs for each of these kind of core recipes the trick is going to be designing the book so that you can have all of this information without yeah. it looking heavy and ponderous with it looking light and fresh and like, oh my God, I can cook this and I can do it the way I want to do it. Melissa, so, I can't wait for this to come I out. know. It's going to be, I mean, I'm really, and writing it is really fun because yeah. it's just, I mean, I just get to, I get to geek out and do 14 banana breads. Um, but really the design thing is going to be like, all right, how do we do this? Do you have a big team that you work with on the recipe development side? I mean, I have, I've always had a recipe tester who, yeah. different people over the years, not many people. I mean, I've yeah. kind of, you know, generally try to work with one person at a time because they, there's continuity in our tastes. Um, so right now I have somebody who comes once a week and helps me with my New York Times stuff and my cookbook stuff. But for this project, I will be taking on. Luckily, I have kept in touch with all my former um, recipe testers. And so um, several of them are looking oh. for work. And so it's like a big happy reunion. And we all cry when we see each other because it's just so nice. How fun. I will, like, well, we'll, we'll wait for that to be announced. I can't wait to, to, to check out the book. We ask all guests on the Taste Podcast... If you could write a dream cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you'd have no deadline, or budget, meaning you'd have unlimited resources, what would that book be? It's the one I'm working on. Okay. I just wish I didn't have a deadline. I wish I had un- uh. <laughs> if I could just have if I could have more time and more money, it could be even better. But deadlines are lifelines, right? And I I will have a deadline, and I will get this yeah. book out, and it will be real, and hopefully it'll help a lot of people cook really really great. Food. I'm so excited about that. Thank you so much, Melissa Clark, for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you in. I just want to talk about your your career at the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, writing cookbooks. We can talk about recipe guys. We can talk about lots of things. I was reading your LinkedIn. I like the little LinkedIn snooping, and I noticed you worked in college, college admissions at Yale and Caltech. I did. What? What? That job sounds so fascinating to me. <laughs> what was that like? It was so fun. I really, really loved it. So it was the first job I had out of college because I had actually worked in the admissions office as an undergraduate. And um, and every year they would hire a few kids, um, you know, out of school. And 
so I had applied for that and and had also applied, obviously, for a ton of other jobs as a senior. But um, but yeah, when that offer became available, I thought it would be mm-hmm. really fun and interesting and fascinating. And it absolutely was. And it, yeah, it was a really, really great experience. So were you like reading essays? Were you giving essays grades? Were you like one <laughs> of the people who decides if someone gets into Caltech? Uh, yeah, so but it, at least when I was there, it was all done by committee. So yeah. we each were given, um, we each had certain regions of the country and the world, and we would read the applications, the full applications of all yeah. the students, and um, and then discuss them. And um, but you know that was only part of it. Uh, another big part of it was a lot of outreach. So a lot cool. of yeah, a lot of outreach to get people to apply, and then also once kids were accepted, spending a lot of time to. Um, convince them to come and wow that really humanizes the the process to me like yeah. I, you think of it as like a bunch of bad news but it sounds like you did a lot of good well there there is a lot of heartbreaking bad news and that was always sad and hard um, yeah but at least when i was there i think it's changed a bit just because the number of applications has increased so dramatically Definitely. but it was a very individual process like you really got to felt like you were getting to know every kid so legitimately, like like being honest, did you ever like weight someone a little higher because they mentioned food in one of their essays? <laughs> if they wrote about it in a really compelling way, <laughs> I have to confess to be like, well, this is a person after my own heart. Okay, let's get to your career at the New York Times, Los Angeles Times. So we have had Emily Weinstein on the show. We've had lots of editors and lots of writers, and, and we'll get into many of your colleagues because we read them all the time. But I want to always hear about how you got to the New York Times food section. You're the deputy editor of the food section. How did you end up at the New York Times? It's funny because when I was interviewing for this position, the HR person had asked me, um, she said, well, why the New York Times? And it was, you know, it was something like, why now? And I was like, no, it's always been. And and actually, it's it feels a little bit full circle for me. So um, I had started my very first job, you know, out of college, was in, in college admissions, and I really enjoyed that. And and it was during that period of time where it finally occurred to me that my lifelong love of food could actually be a career. And so I was in New Haven at the time, um, and I went to a book signing by Mark Bittman. And we just got to chatting about his books, his work, his work at the Times. Um, and it just ha- it just so happened that he you know, at that time was getting tons of big deals and had so much to do that for the first time, he felt like he might need an assistant. Um, And so I actually um, got to work as uh, his assistant for some time. You know, I was still working my full-time job because I had to pay rent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and Mark did pay me. This was after the huge success of How to Cook oh. Everything. And and he he had gotten a few other book deals that were going to be these other big tomes. Um, and so... You know, I was New York Times adjacent-ish, and it was a great education. And it was all while I was, you know, uh, working in restaurant kitchens as well in terms of learning cooking. And um, and it always seemed like just the most obviously wonderful, amazing place. And, and just getting to know his work through, you know, getting to know the place through Mark's work. And, um, yeah, it was always just a dream, obviously. It was always a dream to to write for them, to to be there. Um, and, you know, it's okay that it takes some time. How many cookbooks do you have under your belt right now? What's the number? I think it's been at least at least 16, but at a certain point I lost count. 20, we'll call it. Backing up, though, because I will get into your work currently at the Times, but I want to know, like, why write about food and cooking? What drew you to this kind of topic? Well before, obviously, the foodie culture swept America, you, you've been doing this a, a minute. Um, yeah, why? I have always, always loved food. 
and I've all you know not I can't say always loved cooking because I was a small child at one point without the ability to cook but um but I was that kid who would prefer watching cooking shows to cartoons and and that sounds that's a very common thing I think for kids to say now and I guess I'm dating myself but I think I might have been sort of that very last generation of people who I didn't fall into food per se right like I very intentionally wanted to try to pursue a career in this but it did start as this like huh like maybe mm-hmm. this would be something that I could actually do for a living because I've I've just always loved it. You know, I was raised in a family that really um, loved eating and loved good food and and loved um, exploring it. But actually, neither of my parents really cooked. And Interesting. It's probably part of the reason why I did. Um, yeah. And, you know, I came up in – I grew up in L.A. And at that time, the L.A. Times food section was massive and amazing. And, you know, I remember – those are my – we used to have to do current events where you clip out stories from the paper and present them each week. And I would always do food stories. And, yeah. Um, and it was interesting, though, because, you know, at that time, there certainly were people exploring all these different cuisines. But I felt like I was almost living this parallel life of eating. Um, I grew up in Monterey Park, mm-hmm. which people now know um, for its Chinese food. And it was I was, grew up on the side of Monterey Park that was closer to East LA. And so there's always also this amazing, um, so much amazing Mexican food. And and there was just so much delicious, wonderful, amazing food um, at a time when, you know, other things were happening in food in America. And obviously as a kid, I didn't have any consciousness around this per se, but, but certainly when I was in college and graduated from college and started thinking about food, and, and this was in fact what had sparked my initial conversation with Mark um, at the book signing, um, I realized that, gosh, there's a lot of food that I know so intimately that was out there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and people were starting to write about it, but it was always from the outside in. Um, and I felt like, oh, um, I have this perspective that's from the inside and and know of these dishes from the inside. Um, and and that was, you know, that was part of the motivation. And, and the other part of it was just, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> I loved yeah. it. And I thought, well, could I make this happen? Like, could this actually become a reality? I wasn't sure. Um, there wasn't any clear-cut path to it. Um, but So when you're talking, this is going to be really interesting that you you kind of pinpointed something that we all now as, as editors and writers, we really try to tap into writing from the inside out and trying to actually get the real story or through the voices of the inside, right? We, 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 do, we write about many different cuisines and taste and, and throughout our journalism, but... This is well before, I mean, parachute journalism was was common in food writing at the time when you started writing it. So when you ta- made these initial conversations with Mark and when you ended up working at Gourmet, we, I'd like to hear about that. Were there any like dishes or stories like I need to write about banh mi? Like banh mi was the, this like dish that no, I'm making this up, but like there's dish that, you know, isn't really being covered correctly. Was there something that you really thought about early in your career that kind of you unlocked? There wasn't any one particular topic, but there was sort of a whole category of food that I wanted to cover and and to be really frank, still very much want yeah. to cover now at NYT Cooking, which is I knew just from my upbringing that there's this whole array of dishes that we would cook and eat at home. I mean, it's, it's not fair to say my parents never cooked, obviously. They, they cooked because we had to eat, but you know, or there's this whole array of dishes that I knew in my Chinese American community growing up, they were very common. Like we all eat them, um, but they weren't necessarily the dishes that you would see on Yan Ken cook. He's 
an amazing, an mm-hmm. amazing chef. But that's he, he's a chef, right? Yeah. So so he was doing chef dishes, and um, and even if he was doing home style dishes, right? They were uh, a bit different. Um, but there were just yeah, there was this whole genre of of dishes that we ate all the time, like just every night. And and my elementary school, like where I grew up, the kids were from all different places. Um, uh, and, you know, just all different backgrounds and they would bring things for lunch. And I didn't go to a school where anybody was made fun of for what they brought. Yeah. If anything, I remember one time I felt so bad. There was a kid who was, you know, he, people laughed at him for bringing a bologna sandwich. Nobody understood like, what is that that you have? Because oh, everyone else had rice and beans. And so I sort of knew that this, there are all these dishes that existed. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I thought, gosh, it be nice for other people to get a chance to to cook them and try them. So there wasn't any one specific one, but I do remember one of my first or my very first recipe for gourmet was one of those dishes, um, which is just a Chinese, it's a stir-fried tomato and egg. It's so simple and it's so delicious. But at, at that time, um, it wasn't that commonly known. I'm not even sure. I mean, yeah, Francis Lamb did it for for the times and I think it's been out there a little bit more now, but it wasn't like, oh, I'm. I want to showcase this one dish as a Chinese dish, as like an iconic dish. It was not really being discussed at the time. Yeah, because it wasn't something that you would necessarily like order at a restaurant. Let's talk about gourmet because you were there uh, near the end of gourmet's run. What was that like? Did you have an expense account? I did not, but it was. Oh my goodness, it was amazing. So I was editing. I was sort of straddling a few different things. I was brought on primarily to work on books. So at that time, you know, I was doing a lot of books and there was mm. an arm of um, gourmet books. So I was brought on primarily to work on books. And at that time, there was still a real effort to expand um, uh, on the web, on the digital side. So it was like a cookbook club. And mm. so, um, and then in terms of for the print magazine, um, I wrote the display copy for the food oriented. So the head notes, you know, heads, decks, yeah. and like the, yeah. Um, and it was just, it's such a wonderful, brilliant, talented team of people. And I learned so much, like I just learned so much and I had such a good time and it was really, yeah, it was amazing. It was really amazing to get to explore food, um, in that way. It makes sense now that I know this about your career that you segued into collaboration and you've written so many books and I want to get into them, but that gourmet period when you were doing the books for gourmet, did you kind of, you had talked about your love of, of of writing about food, but did you fall in love with cookbooks at that point? Oh, that was before. Was I had before? always loved cookbooks. You'd always yeah. loved cookbooks. I, had, okay. I, was, I would just go and sit in a bookstore for hours and hours and hours and and flip through them. And then, you know, you have to choose your very special, <laughs> which one you're actually going to take home. This is pre-Amazon days. Right? Yeah. Well, you went on to write books with uh, John George, Seamus Mullen, Katie Button, Carla Hall, and all really interesting people that we could get into. But I want to focus on two in particular that I kind of was introduced to your work. One was Pichet Ong's The Sweet Spot. I love Pichet's writing. Talk about that book in particular, what it was like working with Pichet on like a really progressive idea of of dessert in a dessert cookbook. Yeah, absolutely. So Pichet and I actually met um, through Jean-Georges when I was working on Jean-Georges, one of the, the first cookbook collaboration I did with him, which had started actually with, I was just assisting Mark and, um, and Mark just got super busy. So, um, finished up that project, including the desserts mm-hmm. chapters. And, and at that time, Pichet was a pastry chef, um, at Spice Market. Spice Market, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, when we were working on those recipes together, I think part of what we really enjoyed was that we had this shared connection of these flavors and textures in desserts that, 
he was really introducing to the sort of high-end you mm-hmm. know, New York dining scene, but that we had really both grown up with and known really intimately, um, both in Asia as well as in America. And so, you know, we just started talking and we realized um, there wasn't really a book out there. And so um, so we decided that we would collaborate and, and, and do one together. And it was such a fun project. It was really, really a good time. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine. I, he wrote for me when I was uh, an editor long ago at Food Republic. He, I loved collaborating with him as a writer. He's quite a good writer. Yeah. Uh, and the other book was George Mendes, My Portugal, which I loved so much. That book is special. Oh. The photography is top notch, but George just getting into his mind and the way you were able to collaborate with him. How did that one work out, that collaboration? I just decided to walk into Aldeo one night and sit, you know, I didn't even have a reservation, so I just sat in that front room and obviously I'd read about his food, but I hadn't had a chance to go yet. And just eating it, there was just so much soulfulness in, in the food and it was it was delicious, you know, sort of on every account, but there was so much heart in it, right? You yeah. could tell there's something more there. And I think I went up to him, like, you know, in the middle of service, like, and yeah, I think that, I think that is what I did. I think I straight up just walked up to him and was like, hey, like, yeah, we should, I do cookbooks. We should do a cookbook together. Well, Genevieve, this was well before Porto and Lisbon became these Mecca tourist destinations and really a pioneering book to kind of crystallize Portuguese cuisine in Portugal, but also in the Connecticut. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The American side of it, which. Yeah. I haven't read anything like it since. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's not, it was, he's from Danbury and, and yeah. that area, but um, we also went to, um, you know, what is Newark, you know, mm-hmm. has a number of places. And we didn't actually make it to Massachusetts together, but there's also a big community in Massachusetts. And yeah, it was really amazing. And, um, and I'm glad that I had the chance to go before. Portugal sort of blew up as yeah. as this travel destination. We sort of joke, we joked about it a little bit like, oh, do we do we do that? Because when the book came out, we did all these pieces for like food and wine and mm-hmm. travel and leisure and all this stuff. Um, but it is such a wonderful country and I'm so glad that it's, yeah. I've had the pleasure of visiting a few times and I think you maybe did. I think that that book really got at least the editorial side thinking about a, a destination. We love Spain, of course. We love France and Italy and the Med. Let's kind of head towards Portugal I got to ask you about collaboration because you have authored your own book, but you mostly collaborate and it is a real art. And and we've had, you know, JJ Good on the show. We've had plenty of collaborators. Describe what it's like to collaborate with a chef. Probably it depends on the person. Oftentimes the hardest part is just scheduling. I've really enjoyed it because I, I really like being able to tell people's stories um, and I love being able to tell people stories in their own voices and in their own words when they don't have the time or, um, you know, or inclination to, mm-hmm. but there's so much to tell through their food and also through, um, yeah, through the stories that they have to tell. And, and so I, I've really enjoyed it. I mean, it's, listen, like, have there been tough projects, like the, <laughs> like the ones that you don't know about, but I have considered it such a privilege actually like really to work with all these people because I've learned so much it's basically like getting a master class cooking class with phenomenal chefs who have such expertise in a particular area and I've learned like so much of the cooking I've learned um, has come from these chefs so I did you know I cooked in a restaurant to start to learn learn the basics and just to learn about cooking but yeah I'm almost like embarrassed like it's it's so it's such a privilege, like to stand next to Jean Georges and his like yeah. his lieutenants, and then you know, 
I'm furiously taking notes the whole time. It, it's, it is the greatest gift. I'm, I'm happy you bring that up because I think what we do is such a privilege to be able to experience behind the scenes at restaurants or in home kitchens of just like learning. It is a constant evolution as a home cook. I, I feel that way. Is there is there a cuisine that you really want to work on? I know you're a full-time staffer now and we get into your day-to-day and your times, but is there a cuisine you really want to collaborate on in your future? Gosh, you know, I haven't done a collaboration in a long time and I'm yeah. not sure if or when I will again. And it's really, again, it's just about timing. It, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of flexibility, um, neither of which I, I feel like I have right now. But, you know, there there are, yeah, there are huge swaths of the world I haven't covered that I would love to be standing right alongside, you know, someone who's really an expert in any cuisine from yeah. Central or South America, from, uh, you know, the Middle East from South Asia. Yeah. There's so many places in the world where it would be. Yeah, there's so many. I want to get to your average day-to-day at the New York Times because, you know, we've had your colleagues on. We have Eric Kim, Pete Wells, Melissa Clark, Priya Krishna, Emily Weinstein, as mentioned, and each have kind of had a different story about their day-to-day working at the New York Times. And I, I keep saying New York Times, and I, it has to be said, it's truly the top of the mountain when it comes to food writing. Like, it is we're inspired at Taste Every Day, reading the recipes, but also the Wednesday section. Tell tell me, what is it like day to day for you? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, as you were listing off the names of my just wonderful colleagues, I was like, oh, we each have such different day to days. We yeah. really do. My day to day often is meetings. Those meetings really, you know, they range from obviously editorial meetings, but um so I, I'm an editor for both the food section as well as NYT Cooking. So we also have meetings with the product side. Mm-hmm. And um, and then obviously just chatting with uh, writers and recipe developers and the recipe editors and just, yeah, coordinating with the photo editors, <laughs> coordinating yeah. with everyone across the board. So, so during the day, that's what it is. I try really hard to schedule time for story editing or recipe editing, mm-hmm. um, but oftentimes I do that sort of first thing in the morning or at night. Morning, yeah. Yeah, and then... Um, and then uh, in terms of my own recipe development, for I have a column each month, and then occasionally um, we'll find time to do special stuff. So usually that's weekends. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. Just to have that sort of focused time to sort of cook start to finish. How do you brainstorm? I mean, we have our own process here. I've talked to other editors, but do you have a general idea meeting with some of your writers? And Because I love those. Those are like the best part of our jobs. Like I love an ideas meeting. It's like so fun. So we have um, ideas meetings with our editors. And then we also have, and then I also do ideas meetings with writers. And cool. gosh, you know, something I'm really looking forward to. One of my favorite ideas meetings with the editors was (laughs) we did a, an offsite outdoors over cool. the summer because we hadn't it, this we'd been doing it all by Zoom, you know, and like yeah. shared docs and um, but the natural flow of ideas that comes from sitting around a table together is really really great. Um, and the same is true, of, you know, um, with the writers. You know, we tend to just talk back and forth, uh, usually by video conferencing. Um, but one of our writers, we went for a walk in Central Park and. Yeah. So I'm hoping, hoping, hoping to be able to do more of that. Yeah. Um, but right now it's mainly, yeah, virtual and in, with the editors and with the writers and and editors and writers and, and just sort of always keep the communication flowing as, as ideas and stories develop. You mentioned your monthly column and you write occasionally as well. Do you get deadline anxiety? Honest? Um, yeah, absolutely. Of course. Yeah. I was like... <laughs> 
It took me a really long time. I was a super nerd um, sort of throughout high school and college. I was like the person who had like a draft ready two yeah. weeks before. And, um, you know, I still do my very, very, very best to meet my deadlines, especially because I'm also an editor. So I know how important that is for the editor. Um, but I think only in the last, gosh, four or five years, I realized like actually sometimes it's better to take a beat and wait if if it's not there. Right. Like if you're just trying to like force something and you're not, uh, it's not there for me. For me, I think the part of the writing process that takes the longest is the thinking (laughs) is the sort of just circling the ideas in my head and like, okay, what is the outline? What is the story? What is the outline? What is the story? And um, I am so grateful for my brilliant colleagues. I've, um, you know, I have regulators, but every once in a while, you know, we switch around uh, just too many people's schedules and, and every single person is always um, made me help me think more clearly, help me write more clearly, helped articulate, you know, whatever themes um, we're trying to get across, and and certainly have caught, yeah, <laughs> have caught um, mistakes big and small. I have to ask you, you do you work with particular writers? Or are you doing general top edits? I know we're getting into a little bit of the weeds here, listener, but are you are you assigned to certain writers, or are you are you doing general top edits, headline deck stuff? Yeah, so. Um, one of the things I really love about our team and the way Emily Weinstein has led us is that we really collaborate as a team. And so oftentimes the way our, um, the way we assign edits and editors is we do have, we, we do each have certain writers. So I, I edit Eric Kim, for example, but you know, if there's a particular week where I'm really slammed with X, Y, and Z, then, you know. Um, somebody else will will take that over. But um, but yeah, we do have we do have particular writers. Um, one of my primary roles is um, assigning, and so oftentimes I'll work with uh, a writer and a recipe developer to start um, and to start sort of getting those ideas around, and then and then have them actually you know go ahead and get started on the story, and and then when the story actually comes in again, sort of just depending on scheduling, you know, I'll catch up whoever, uh, you know, somebody else is going to take over as the mm-hmm. first editor. I'll catch them up on like, Hey, here's what this is, should be, here's where we want it to land. And, uh, do you read the comments in the app? I asked Eric this as well. I mean, there's, I think the, the, the New York time NYT cooking fans are real fans. I do read them, but honestly, I read them as an editor. I read them to catch, um, to catch anything, you mm-hmm. know, it, we're one of the things about NYT cooking is that um, we actually do continue to edit even after recipes are published. So I read the comments to see if some if if you start to see like five, six comments of people saying like I do not understand what step two is telling me to do, then I'll call you know call the editors or the developer and be like, hey, like we need to edit step two. Like obviously this is not clear or like. Uh, you know, oh, wait, is this ingredient the same thing as this other ingredient? And you see a few people ask that, and you realize, oh, gosh, we should have mentioned that. And then we'll mm-hmm. add that. Our recipes go through such a rigorous process that, of course, in theory, there should be no mistakes uh, yeah. by the time they're published. But uh, but for sure, sometimes maybe we're using language that isn't clear yeah. or we're putting the steps in an order where maybe in another order it'd be easier for home cooks or an ingredient list, you know. Um, measurements should be flipped, you know, maybe the number of apples should come before the weight of the apples. So, so I do read the comments actually both to, um, I, I do, I am inspired by, I love hearing how home cooks make recipes their own. That's really fun. But I'm often scanning for like, okay, like, is there anything here that we should do to make this recipe even more, uh, usable or user-friendly? I mean, recipes, you could think about recipes as software, 
and, and like like fundamentally, I mean, they need updates. Yeah, I want to get into home cooking. Like, I'd like to just hear. We're recording this in in early September. Um, I'm not sure when we're going to run this, but we're getting in that we're that bridge season between summer and fall in the East Coast where we are. And I'd like to hear first. Um, you mentioned off mic that you were working on some Thanksgiving content. What what are you thinking about right now? Like right now, uh, are you thinking about fall, winter, or are you thinking further? And what are some specific like recipes that you're working on? I'd be I just love to hear. I'm thinking right here, right now, fall. I'm thinking a lot about Thanksgiving all the time. I'm thinking yeah. about the holiday season, but I'm actually also thinking into January. So one of the things that I've really enjoyed about going. Um, back to newspapers, I'd been in magazines for a long time, was, you know, in, in the magazine world, there was a very, there was a very regular cycle, month to month to month to month. Um, and at the newspaper, and with it, you know, that's a digital product, really, is just this constant, like there's a constant flow of, of um, what you're thinking about. So, um, so we're, we're really like deep in Thanksgiving now. But I think what I've been thinking about a lot for the fall and, and for the winter is not just the holiday cooking, but is really the home cooking. And and I have been thinking, it's not so much how do we do it different, but like, how do we make it new and fresh and exciting again, but also doable? Um, I think one of the things that I love most about my uh, colleagues and, and uh, you know, on the, cooking, on the cooking team, we have a group of editors who are dedicated to the cooking content. Um, and they're just a wonderfully empathetic group of people who really understand what people need at home yeah. <laughs> and want at home. So how do we balance um, recipes that are so simple? Um, because when, you know, at the end of the day, you're exhausted or you're busy. But balancing that with what is what is new and fresh and exciting, right? We're coming out of this crazy period of time in mm -hmm. the world. Where nothing feels exciting about cooking. We really, you know, we ha do you ever want to eat more comfort food again? I don't, you know, nah. yes yeah. and no. Like, yes, because you always do. But gosh, you want something fresh and new and exciting. So all of our developers, um, you know, yeah. certainly on staff, like Melissa and Yuanda and Eric on staff. And, and, uh, and then we have developers who develop a lot for us. Ali, uh, Kei Chun mm -hmm. is another one whom... I knew from gourmet days and they're so great at thinking of like, you know, sure. So how do we make something feel fresh and exciting and get you like in the kitchen again? Um, that isn't going to require, you know, 20 pots and pans and trips so to seven true. markets. And, and so we're always, yeah, we're always trying to, to figure out what are, you know, what are those moments? What, what can we do? What can we offer? And so certainly for, um, all the holiday stuff that we're doing, like, oh, you're having you're having people over, you know, but also just like, okay, it's what day is today? Tuesday. It's Tuesday today. And like, what are you going to do for dinner? Like, we're, we're always trying to answer um, all those questions. I love that about New York Times cooking. It, it really is for home cooks. Yeah. And the thing I do say, you know, uh, all of our developers, you know, I, I should mention Alexa Weibel on, on our staff. Um, she's actually an editor, but also a great developer. And so so she develops for us too. The hardest thing to do, the hardest recipes to do are the simplest ones. Oh, gosh. For sure. So true. For sure. Like, can you make something delicious with 23 ingredients and a sous chef? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, or whatever. Like having somebody do your dishes. Um but yeah, I really value how hard our developers work to to take something um, and make it so delicious. But it feels really effortless. Hetty McKinnon is another one of our developers yeah. who does that so well. Like it just feels so like easy peasy. But then when you taste it, like you have all these different textures and flavors and 
testers do. I, you know, I don't want to neglect our testers yeah. do such a great job. Like just yesterday, one of our testers, I, you know, I think I'd written something like until there's an inch of water and I'd written how much water that was for me. She's like, well, you know, for my pot, it was half a cup more. And I think mm-hmm. maybe you should just give the amount of water. I was like, oh, that's a really good point. Cause she's like, clearly my sauce is thinner. And it, just like you said, yeah. Like, yeah. Wow. Thanks so much. Like that's such helpful. I have to ask you about ingredients in books, two separate topics, but anything that's on like the tip of your tongue right now, as you're looking into fall, we're entering the fall cookbook season. So maybe a couple cookbooks that you're enjoying. Um, I know you're biased. You can very well be biased. Um, and also, yeah, ingredients. Like I have to ask you like something like what's the new Duca? I, I did ask that. That's, that's actually not a real question. That was a joke. Well, I will say, um, Melissa's book just came out and yeah. gosh, it's so lovely. She's so masterful at doing just what we're talking about. Like, um, simple with, with minimal, mm-hmm. uh, work. I, you know, it's a little bit hard for me to say right at this moment, like ones I'm really excited about because, you know, we apply the same rigor to our cookbook, end of your cookbook review, as we do um, our recipes and our stories. And we're right in the thick of it right now. Okay. So I've actually just been looking at like hundreds of galleys and, and early copies. We will await your your general thoughts in a, a tidy article at the end of the year. What about an <laughs> ingredient? What are we thinking right now? So <laughs> one of the things that I really feel really strongly about with like ingredients, both in terms of ingredients that we use in our recipes and the way that we talk about them and write about them. And I think this goes all the way back to what I was talking about before, like how I got into this or why I got into this. I sort of hate the notion of ingredients being hot or trending or special or new because, yeah, I very much grew up with like, like, um, I grew up with fish sauce. I'm Cantonese, but like I grew up with fish sauce and then I'm like, oh, fish sauce, you know, ooh, new. And I was like, what? This is not new. And I, I just think it's so relative, the idea of like an ingredient being new or hot or like, have you tried? And it's true that there are a lot of people who haven't tried a lot of things. And so so that is a totally valid experience for, for someone to have. But I think to cast it in that light or to look at it in that way, to have that sort of framework, um, you know, I I don't love it. I think othering is a terrible problem with food writing and trying to like say something is hot or new is is makes my stomach turn a bit. We actually think about that and talk about that so much and we edit so carefully and yeah. and consult so many levels, you know, spellings, ingredients, descriptions and and trying to find that balance between trying to change the framework through which we're talking about food and ingredients mm-hmm. and techniques where um again understanding that this may be the most familiar uh, intimate sort of technique or ingredient or dish for some, and for some it may be absolutely new. And so, always trying to find that balance of, of obviously conveying the information as well as understanding that the audience, how vast you know what a range of experiences the audience has. So, um, yeah, so it's something we just we spend a lot of time yeah. just thinking about. And um, and the way I, I often put it to my editors and writers is, you know, it's not it's not actually necessarily about background. Well. It is about very, but it's not necessarily about like race or heritage. It's it's almost a way of thinking about it. Really, is thinking about culinary background. Like think about the range of people you know in terms of how much or how little they know about food at all, mm-hmm. and that's who that's who you're writing to, right? So you could be writing to someone who comes from a particular 
culture, and you could be writing about that cuisine, it's very possible they have never, ever heard of yeah. this dish, right? Yeah. So you, you really want to just think about the whole range of experiences that people have mm-hmm. uh, in the kitchen or with food in general. Well said. Thank you. That's really articulate. Thank you for pointing that out because I think getting to the point of like the actual cooking and the subtext being important but not the foundation of the recipe is important. Um, your business is good at the New York Times. It seems like the cooking app like is popular, more popular than ever. It's like the kind of thing that changes stock prices. <laughs> I mean, is it – I'm joking, but like clearly your the NYT cooking, the app, the paid subscription is really important to the New York Times. Is that is that my – like it's a big part of the business. You know, I think as an editor, I – work really hard to just remember sort of why we do what we do, which is to help people mm-hmm. cook, <laughs> to help yeah. people live richer lives through through food. And, um, you know, and, and I think that's something that, um, you know, for all of, for all of, um, you know, all the people on my team and, and as we talk about our, our recipes and again, like the rigor with which we bring to our recipe editing, it's like, we're doing this, we're doing this to, um, yeah, to help people mm-hmm. cook and enjoy food more. And and I and one of the things that we do think a lot about as editors, we we absolutely want to expand our audience. We absolutely want to get more people on the app and more people cooking because they just think it's just an amazing way to experience the world. You know, we very much see cooking and the app as not, you know, not like an extension of the New York Times, but we really see it as a New York Times. And so you know, when we're editing, when we're talking to our writers, like we're like every top note here, like this is like a tiny, tiny food story. This is like a hundred word food story. And and we we want everyone to not only like learn about um, what we do from just reading, you know, those top notes or looking at the photos, but then actually experiencing it. Like what we feel like, we feel like we're actually giving you news to eat. Right? Yeah, I love that. But your audience is so massive. It's not just a hundred word head note and photo. I mean, you're getting, you're reaching the world. And it seems to me that home cooks are getting younger and younger. When we started Taste in 17 and I worked in food editorial for 15 years prior, like it was an older audience. I don't know if you agree with me. It seemed like food, like recipes and cookbooks were for older. Do you feel like it's getting younger? Um, I hope it is. And that's what I mean. Like we have, like they're huge swaths of like, um, the world that we're like, gosh, we really, yeah, we want younger people to, to be on the app. We want, um, yeah, we want to reach people who haven't gotten here yet. Um, and we want to, you know, we want to do it by enticing them with things that they didn't even know they wanted, but also by offering dishes that maybe, you know, that maybe they do want that, you know, um, that we haven't yet had. And so, so we're always thinking of all those things, but I, I love, like, I love hearing or seeing people who are younger getting engaged with, um, getting engaged with our app and certainly with, um, we have a, an amazing social media team. So getting engaged through our content on YouTube or on TikTok or on Instagram. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and it's really exciting to see all of these sort of pieces melding together, um, with NYT cooking and, um, yeah. And we're really, we're just excited to, to try to keep growing, you know, and even what days, like I, in a few weeks, gosh, we're launching this. Um, I'm, oops, I'm so excited. Um, we're starting these. We have a, a cooking festival in New York City. Cool. But even leading up to that, we're doing these events uh, across the country to actually get to meet users in oh, real fun. life. Yeah, yeah, it's super Great. fun. And then we have like these cooking kits that you can order, and you get um, 
just the pantry, like stable yeah, ingredients, fun. which is super fun. Oh, like what you're talking about. Are any of these like the hot and trendy ingredients? Uh, I'm not going to phrase <laughs> that way, but they're delicious ingredients. That sure. Like chosen and curated. And I think that's sometimes, that's the thing that I sometimes miss working in food media instead of working in a restaurant kitchen. It's like, I want to feed you. I want to meet yeah. you. I want to like talk to you. And yeah. So Cooking it's super fun that we like are, are um, doing these sort of like NYT cooking experiences where you can actually like come and hang out with with the writers and the editors and also chefs that we're we're collaborating with and yeah. So how many uh, minutes a day are you on TikTok? Zero. I know I should be. I feel like I should be. I I think I mean we had Bettina McIntyre on the on the show. Uh, she is big on TikTok and like studies it and writes about it for Eater. And I I just think TikTok excites me. It certainly is younger, but it excites me because it shows a brand new audience, meaning they're brand new to cooking. Oh, absolutely. Like engaging with food. And that's cool. I love that. You know, one of the things I really love about it is how it can how can how it can really help bring dishes to light in a way Gosh, that, yeah. that I feel like, you know, it's it's amazing. Like, and this is a minute ago, but who doesn't know what birria is now? I know, like, right? There's all these, there are all these kid like teenagers making birria and i'm like that's amazing like that's really wonderful right this dish has been around for so long well you grew up you know near east I grew la up with where birria, right so much great birria, yeah. birria there um, but but the way that it took over the world really it was like an international phenomenon and and Tejal wrote a lovely piece on it for us and we're dipping tacos yeah yeah exactly you know? exactly so i do i do appreciate that like wow it can really <laughs> in food it can really help um help get the word out on on certain dishes. Okay, so speaking of Tejal, in early September, Tejal drops a story about recipe question mark and the re- recipe reply guy. I thought it was a great piece. I think it covered a lot of things that get discussed on social media and in and, and, and Slack channels at publications. And the idea that when you produce a piece of content, you put it on social media, it could be a photo, it could be a reel, it could be a TikTok there's somebody, she gendered it as male, and sh- fair enough, there's probably plenty of males, pl- plenty of all genders. There's someone who always replies, recipe question mark, recipe, where's the recipe? And I thought the piece was interesting. What do you think about the recipe question mark idea? So I, I need to, you know, the disclaimer here is that I am almost never really almost never on social media. I don't see it as much, I think, as other people are very engaged on on those platforms. And I don't see the threads I follow. And so I'm not, I'm not quite as attuned to the cadence mm-hmm. of what that means. You know, the one the one thing I had shared with Tejal when, when we were talking about this early on was I found it really interesting. You know, for me, when I check my Instagram once in a blue moon and somebody will ask for a recipe. I was like, oh, that's so nice. That's my gut reaction. It's like, oh, that's so nice. You'd like to cook this dish. Of course, here's the recipe. Um, and I was saying, oh, the one thing that I've had happen in my experience that I find really interesting is that sometimes those conversations will continue with like, well, can you then also give me a recipe for this? And can you tell me how to make this thing? Can you? I was like, whoa, okay. Uh, this is really interesting that this there's this intimacy in this uh, exchange of uh, of um, making requests. Yeah. <laughs> Annoying intimacy for some. Well, yeah. yeah I mean, sort of, it, it, it's, it's always really interesting um, to me. Um, and so I, I have to confess, like, I, I, I would encourage everyone to read Tejal's piece. I think it's really, really fascinating. And I think it, it does speak a lot to I kind of agree with you. My initial instinct is that, yes, it's annoying, but it 
is almost like an extension of the like, of the thumbs up. It's like they're almost co-signing on their love of the piece of content yeah. so much that they're saying, I'd like a recipe. I commit like that. That's my initial take. But I think if you read the piece and I'll link to it in the show notes, it's it's really fascinating. It, I'm, she really articulates something that I think it boiled a lot of blood around the Internet. And I <laughs> I, I see it. So Yeah. In my in my very, you know, um, optimistic and idealistic worldview, I'm like, I hope everybody who's asking for a recipe just wants to cook it. That's <laughs> my my hope is my hope, though. You know, I think one of the things I really love about NYT cooking that I've thought more and more about is. You know what? Actually, it's totally fine if you don't want to cook this. It's totally fine if you're not interested in in going to the store and buying these ingredients. I, a lot of times, you know, um, I feel like it's. I hope it's fun for our users just to look and see what's there, just to sort of scan, just to, even if it's just to look through the photos. Our photo editor is so brilliant, and she she works with so many teams to get all these beautiful images. Um, but I like to think of the app or hope that people use the app almost just as like, um, yeah, just a way to learn as entertainment and not necessarily having to cook a whole dish start to finish. But I think of the same way I'm working on a cookbook with Dookie Hong right now, Korea World. And, and we think about the same as like it's almost like a mood board. It's almost yeah, like an exactly. extension of knowledge. Exactly. And I look at your app and I think of the same thing. I obviously can't cook everything I right, star right. or save to the recipe box, but it's true. And back to the recipe question mark, I think it's maybe somebody who just wants a little more information um, about the cool thing that's happening. But I see the point of Tejal and many other. It is can be quite annoying <laughs> when it's simply that. I, I will confess early on, like, you know, early on with recipe, earlier recipe sites, I've you know worked in a number of magazines mm-hmm. and I've had digital extensions with recipe sites. I used to get as a recipe developer, I used to get annoyed. I used to get annoyed if somebody would write in and say, well, you know, this dish was really bad. I mean, mm. I used chicken instead of fish and I used, <laughs> you know, Classic. I used olives instead of tomatoes and I used <laughs> whatever, you know, Classic. like whatever crazy things. And I remember I used to feel um, like, well, then you didn't make the dish and how, you know, how yeah. can you respond like that? But now when I see those sorts of comments on NYT cooking, maybe this is just, I don't know, this is some sort of evolution. Optimism in the Evolution, air. optimism, yeah. you know, where I'm like, cool, great, go for it, you know, like, um, but I do think, but I do think the spirit of that has changed because I think, I remember, I, you know, these comments used to have sort of a, a very mean-spirited quality towards yeah. the, the recipe and therefore the recipe creator of like, well, this isn't good, you yeah. know, whereas now it feels more like... Hey, I made this and I made all these changes and it was okay. And the, and and I think, you know, in in that sense that that stance is a little bit more like, well, this is what I did and this is what I think of it's it almost, as opposed to like you gave me a It's bad. almost collegial within the comments section of NYT Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I like that about it. I love it. that. I love that. Mm-hmm. It's a community. You really have built a community absolutely. from whole cloth. It's absolutely. Pretty cool. Uh, Genevieve, we asked all guests on the Taste Podcast if there was a dream cookbook or food culture book project you could work on without the burden of (laughs) budget, meaning you have unlimited money, the advance was like a billion dollars, or time, meaning you didn't have a job. What is your dream cookbook project? When when I saw this question, you know, and I I thought about it, you know, the question I had back for you is, well— is time travel involved? Can time travel be involved if there was a real dream cookbook? I don't know if this is just because. Have you seen Russian Doll? Yes. I usually watch Russian Doll and then yeah. rewatch Palm Springs and have just been thinking a lot about time travel and time loops and all this. Both are great. I love Palm Springs. Yeah. So my dream cookbook experience would be to be able to 
travel in time and to see dish like really you know see cooking evolve see how it's changed you know we study it all the time i love going into the times archives and other um, you know they're great libraries with old cookbooks um but my dream cookbook would be um to do you know a, a sort of evolution of cooking i'd probably i'd probably choose maybe like one cuisine or one place or something just to to have a a cohesive book right i'm still thinking like a still thinking like an editor i'm like well what is that like quantum leap yeah, something like that. You know, would that be amazing? Right, because we can research it and we can do interviews and we can look at archival yeah. footage. But I want to be in the kitchen. I want to be. I want to be standing next to. You know, I want to be there. Where, where's the there on the spot, Genevieve? Where do you want to go? Are we talking about like Milan, nineteen fifty post war, building up from the ashes? Are we talking? French Nouvelle. I don't know if you ever watched. This is one of the shows I was obsessed with as a kid is Great Chefs of the World. Oh, great Chefs, Great Cities. Those books too, yeah. They... Right. Those feel like they're very much of a time and place. I would like to be in those kitchens <gasps> at that time. Um, but I think, you know, one thing that I, I increasingly want to explore more is my, I was, you know, born and raised in the U.S. and Chinese American. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think Chinese cuisine is, um, it's not underrated by any means, but it has such a deep, deep, deep history that in the Western world, we don't get as much of an education, you know, you know, with that because because of just really the language barrier, ultimately the cultural barrier, um, you know, a lot was lost in the Cultural Revolution, to put it mildly. So it'd be amazing to to go through through that time loop. I guess you know, I guess the thing is though, I would also have to acquire much more intense language skills than I have now, but. But I need the time machine. But that would be my dream. I mean, so I guess you know, short of that, I guess it would be researching something of the same. But um, but yeah, I love seeing how food evolves and changes. You know, again, like something we hear about every day is like, well, this isn't, you did it this way. This isn't how it's done. This isn't how it's supposed to be done. This isn't. And sometimes it's not, right? Well, not hopefully not. I think we do some, but sometimes there's stuff out there that um, maybe isn't quite right. But I think the way I look at it is like, this is cooking evolves, food evolves, communities evolve. And um, yeah, this is how dishes change. It's software. Genevieve Co. thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I uh, have to say, Anna and I are such fans of uh, of what you do at the New York Times, uh, longtime readers, longtime subscribers, but also you as a person. You've supported taste. You've been just you, the little notes and just seeing you at events. We really thank you for that. Thank you. It's so sincere. Um, I remember the the I think it was the first time I actually met you in person, and I was like, I feel like <laughs> I'm meeting someone from one of my favorite bands. <laughs> I, I just really have have appreciated what what y'all been doing uh, for years now. So so kind, and and I I want to get into your story because it's a really good one. Um, before you you joined the New York Times and the food desk, uh, you are the the food and cooking editor of the New York Times. Yes. You're, you're the boss. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you're, you're an MFA student uh, and grad at Columbia. So how did you get from MFA Columbia to the New York Times food desk? So um, uh, first of all, you don't need an MFA to work in a newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do have one. And um, mm. uh, so I was working at the Village Voice and um, – and it was just clear there were changes there. The, the voice was about to be sold. And um, and I had a friend who was at Columbia. And, and I always loved to write. And I knew that, 
you know, I knew that what I wanted to do was either write or be an editor um, or an editor who wrote or, you know, some combination of the two. And so I uh, I ended up in this uh, program at Columbia um, and nonfiction writing and um, in loved it, totally loved it. And then at the end of my coursework, I, I still had to write a master's thesis. Basically, you have to write a book. And I just needed a freelance job, you know, to support myself while I was still like paying Columbia in order to write this thesis. And I happened to run into a friend of mine who who uh, you might know, J.J. Good. He's a cookbook author. Um, sure. A columnist for taste, long time <laughs> contributor. Columnist for taste. That's yeah. right. So um, I, I just happened to know J.J. and I ran into him uh, and he and J.J. and his wife and I are old friends. And I said, yeah, I'm just looking for a freelance job, you know, copy editing fact-checking. That was the sort of work I had done before I went to grad school. And he had heard about some, like, random freelance fact-checking job at the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And I was like, great. Sounds great. And I figured it must be for the magazine. I mean, who who else at the Times would be fact-checking? Newspapers don't really do that. Um, but it turned out to be for the food section. Mm -hmm. And I went to the Times, and this was at the old building on 43rd Street. The Times used to have this office that, that really looked like a newspaper from the movies um, and a newsroom from the movies. Mm -hmm. And uh, I met Pete Wells, who was the food editor then, and Trish Hall, who, who oversaw the feature sections. And... Um, and spoke with them, and they hired me to fact check the restaurant listings database. Yes, <laughs> which is what a grind. Uh, is not a good job, um, <laughs> but it, but it was yeah. a job. I re I really needed a job, and uh, it was at the New York Times, mm -hmm. and I got a pass. I could go to the office and work at the office. And I remember the first day I I went to the office, and I had no. I loved restaurants, and at the Voice, I had worked with Robert Sietzema. One of my one of my tasks at the Voice was to fact check Robert Sietzema's column, the food critic there. So counterculture. Yeah. yeah. So I had this real love of of what he did. Um, I loved restaurants. I loved eating out. But I had never really thought about being a food writer or editor. It just wasn't in my frame of reference, really. And I got there and I looked around and I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> These are my people. I was like, oh, this is this is good. Um, and I just resolved. I was like, I'm going to I'm going to work like crazy and hopefully I'll get to stay. And so what a cool story. And I, I feel starting from the bottom now we're here some moment with, with this story because <laughs> you really did work your way up. What were some of the jobs after you were, uh, you know, fact-checking the restaurant listings? What were some of the other jobs you held on the, on the food desk? So uh, when I got hired on staff at the Times, I actually did not get hired on the food desk, but I, I, I got hired on the culture desk, which is those are the art sections of the paper, like – the daily art sections, arts and leisure, mm -hmm. um, but they needed somebody to do their listings, and they're like, "Well, you're already doing the restaurant listings. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, you're checking this database." And by the way, at the times, at the time, the Times did not really care about its recipe database. They were sitting on this archive of recipes going back to 1981, um, and they just were totally focused on the restaurant listings. Mm -hmm. And I understood why. I mean, I still understand why. Mm -hmm. Um, so they hired me to do the listings and they hired me in a job that doesn't exist anymore, um, a web producer. Oh, and yeah. back then. Remember those? Remember those, right? CMS management. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. The CMS. I mean, I've been through so many CMSs yeah. at the New York Times. You know, and the job then was basically you had all these writers and editors who, you know, made the newspaper. They like put together the New York Times and then like it went to the printing plant and everybody went home. <laughs> 
and the web producers were there, just like elves in Santa's workshop, you know, putting it all on the control internet. C, control V style. <laughs> yeah. Like nobody had any idea what we did yeah. or who we were or what even happened. Um, but it all ended up on nytimes.com. So and that was that was my mm-hmm. job and I focused on the listing. So I was always working with the food section, including I helped launch a uh, a blog that Mark Bittman wrote at the oh. time. So so very early on, I was working really closely with like Mark Bittman of all people, yeah. which is an amazing education. Um, and then uh, some time passed and I got more involved with, with the Culture Desk and the arts coverage. And then the web producer job on the Food Desk opened up. And back then it was the dining section. Um, so I moved over there. Wow. Um, and I've, I've really been there ever since. Um, what year are we talking about? Did you make that switch over? Oh, my gosh. I'm, I, you know, time is a river. Yeah. <laughs> I've just been doing this for so long. I want to say like 2009, yeah. probably. Like two, what an interesting time for um, digital media for food. Like Eater is is really just starting to pick up steam. You've got places, uh, City Search and Metro Mix, where I worked, we're doing like listing stuff. And then there's like all sorts of blogs. All sorts of blogs. I mean, and, and Grub Street. And, oh, of course, Grub Street, of course. And, I mean, you know, a big reason the Times was really interested in, in those restaurant listings is because New York Magazine had a really robust mm-hmm. um, listings database. Also, um, is it Foursquare? Yeah. Foursquare. <laughs> Foursquare. And um, this is before Yelp really took off in New York. I think Yelp was happening in San Francisco at that point. There yeah. were just all these different players in like digital food space, especially restaurants um, and uh, especially listings. You know, this idea of like, hey, can we tell people where to go eat? Yeah, it's really changed so much. And, and the way the recipe has, has kind of changed over time. And I, I, I say most legacy media, quote unquote, legacy media places uh, did not put all their database on the internet. Like gourmet is a great example too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so let's fast forward to your current job, uh, which is running um, cooking and food, which is there are two very different aspects. I'd like to hear about the difference. But also I'd like to hear about the your day-to-day. What is it like running the food desk, running the cooking app, all of these different um, aspects of the New York Times food section. It's really cool, like impressive too. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Um, well, it's it's fun because everyone's so excited about it. Yeah. Internally, externally, there's just a lot of momentum and excitement around what we're doing in Food at the Times um, and NYT Cooking. My day-to-day uh, is a lot of meetings, yeah. um, which I think, um, you know, I you know in between those years of being a web producer and what I do now, you know, I was an editor. I, I edited stories and mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. And um, and so now um, I don't edit as much as I used to, which, you know, was my first love, but but that's cool. But but I do I do talk with people all day, which is really interesting. And the meetings really reflect sort of the vast array of things that we are up to right now. So, you know, we you know, I'll sit at my desk, I'll read some things. I, I usually call into the New York Times newsroom morning news meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it used to be called the page one page meeting. Page one meeting, of course, famous, yep. yeah. Yep, there's a documentary about it. So um I call into that meeting and uh just get a sense of the news of the day. Um, but as told by the editors running those departments before the news is online. So, you know, the Washington editor is talking about the stories they're following, international editor, whatever the biggest news story of the day is the person. Sarah Palin dining 
eating in a restaurant without a mask having COVID maybe? <laughs> yep, maybe that. <laughs> so, and you know, we have editors to go to that meeting too. So yeah. so usually I start the day um, just listening in on that, um, getting a sense of what's going on. Um, we have a staff meeting uh, every morning just for the um, editors and reporters who do um, in the newsroom and the food uh, desk and cooking, um, sort of the editorial part of the cooking team. You know, we just catch up. Um, we have brainstorm sessions. We have ideas meetings. I go to meetings with the um, cooking product leadership team. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, I represent the editorial part of the operation, but, you know, dozens and dozens of people work on NYT cooking, you know, engineers, designers, product managers. Which is a real business for the Times, yes. NYT cooking, the app. Huge business for the Times. They announced in December we passed a million subscribers. Amazing. Congrats. So cool. Thank you. Hey, nobody ever thought that would be possible for a recipe website. So so we're pretty excited about that. But uh, I speak with those people. I speak yeah. with the marketing people. I speak with the other, I go to meetings with the other leaders of the other features desks at the Times, you know, culture styles. Mm-hmm. Um, I meet with writers on our team. I meet with writers outside the paper, um, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff all the time. Uh, it sounds like the meetings um, take over uh, your your life with, with in, in, any you know, job of leadership, that that's the case. But also it sounds like you have are an editor at heart and you want to make sure the stories um, are executed. Are, do you dip in with your pen once in a while? Um, <laughs> I do. You know, it's, it's um, I think you have to kind of let people, you know, you have every editor is going to edit a story a little differently and you have to let people do what they're going to do. But but yeah, I, I read our stories before they go live for the most part. Sometimes some get by me, but, you know, I really try to read them all at least. And um, and usually I'm like, great. And then every yeah. once in a while I'm like, oh, I'm not sure about this. And, um, you know, we kind of go from there. I'm sure what you're not saying too is that um, your staff comes to you with like the hard questions too because I'm sure that there are – I mean, you're not covering just cooking. Like, to be clear to our to our listeners, um, the the culture aspect of food covering in your times is is tremendous. You know, Priya Krishna, friend of taste and and contributor, is doing some some of the work. Eric Kim as well is like reporting on the world of food. So I'm sure you have some tough. Were there any tough decisions? Not getting into any specifics, but like, what types of questions do you get often? Well, you know, we and in addition, you know, so to just a, a little more context there. So, yeah, so we're producing MIT cooking, right? So this is this enormous recipe um, resource, this app. Um, but we're also producing investigations. Sure. You know, two of our reporters won a Pulitzer for their Me Too coverage um, with the reporting on Ken Friedman and the Spotted Pig. It was Kim Severson and Julia Moskin, amazing reporters. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're doing investigations, reporting news about the restaurant industry. We're um, writing feature stories about food culture in America. Yeah. You know, we're producing restaurant criticism. Um, we're doing all kinds of things. Uh, tough questions. You know, usually it's sort of about picking our shots. Um, you know, where are we going to put our energy? Where are we going to put our resources? How do we want to shape the story? We're also just one part of the New York Times, you know, Um uh, so is it like, well, well, should we do this or should we see if Metro is going to do it? Or mm. Should we do this or is Biz going to cover it? That's mm-hmm. a business desk. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's a lot of that, like understanding, like how are we going to proceed on something tricky or how do we want to think about this tricky thing? 
and how are we going to move forward on it? Makes a lot of sense. We we have to pick our battles to a it. taste. It's it's important when you have limited um, resources. You can't do every story, and you have to like take a pick your swings. You mentioned reviews, and I have to ask: Do you go to any review uh, meals with Pete? Pete's been on the podcast, and we've talked about his process and his deadline anxiety, as everyone has. But do you do you go to to dine with him? I have in the past. You know, sadly, I don't go anywhere anymore. Yeah, <laughs> right yeah. Because yeah, of COVID, well, I dine out very. I'm not dining with anyone so much right now. But yeah. um, I did before COVID. Um, not a ton, um, but I go out with Pete sometimes. Pete, if you hear this, <laughs> I, I am available again. Um, you know, the last <laughs> throw throw some time on my cow. It can be after five. It could be five thirty. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love it's really I mean, look, it is really fun to go out to eat with with Pete. Um, yeah. I just really enjoy talking with Pete. I think he's a remarkable thinker and so interesting and fun to talk to. He's so funny. And um, last time I ate with Pete, I'm trying to remember, I think it was in 2019. We went to the Second Avenue Deli. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and it was not for a review. I remember oh. meeting him and we were supposed to go somewhere nearby and the place was was closed unexpectedly, and he was like, ah, oh, you know, for Pete, every meal kind of has to count. You know, he has to eat at so many restaurants yeah. in order to do the work that he does. So we're like, all right, well, how are we going to salvage this? <laughs> and we just walked over to the Second Avenue Deli, and um, I'm pretty sure we had pastrami sandwiches and celeries uh, and— oh. Pickles. I'm sure I had matzo ball soup. I can't imagine leaving the Second Avenue Deli without having matzo ball soup. So, uh, so yeah, it was not a review meal, but it was great. It was a great meal. I've had the pleasure <laughs> of dining with him as well, and and he is is really. Uh, I mean, he was a culture editor before food, so he obviously has a lot of great. He has great taste in yeah, and music and film and just cool dude. And I'm waiting for my invite to Pete as well. So <laughs> yeah. if you're listening, Pete, we're here. <laughs> Um, I have to talk about you as a writer because you write a weekly newsletter as well in addition to all this work um, called Five Weeknight Dishes. And I I love it. It's really well written. It's very tightly packaged and you're an editor at heart. Do you get deadline anxiety? (laughs) Every week you got to do this thing? You know, no. You know, writing requires a muscle and you work the muscle every week. You know, it's, it's, you know, if you try to get on a treadmill and run a mile and you haven't done it in a long time, it's going to be really hard. You know, you do it several times a week. You know, you're going to be fine. And um, but I am a terrible procrastinator. Um, Who isn't? I know, but I'm bad, and I'm like not supposed to be bad, right? Like I'm supposed to be good. I need to like be the change I want to see in the world around <laughs> deadlines and procrastination. But um, but no, um, I just know it's just something I have to do, and it's something I love to do. Yeah. Um, and um, for me, it, it keeps me writing and. Um, you know, I'm not a recipe developer. I, I'm yeah. I'm not a culinary professional. I'm I'm an editor. I'm a writer and I'm an editor who loves food. I'm I'm quite a passionate home cook, and so really, I'm just like a fan. So it, it keeps me really closely tied to the recipe development work we do at NYT Cooking. It and it, you know, I'm just constantly cooking from the app. I want to know what our writers are doing. I want to know what's new. I want to know what's interesting, and then I get to tell people about it. So. Um, and it also keeps me close to readers. I, th- I think it's a way of yeah. sort of showing appreciation for them and their needs. I mean, the reason we launched that newsletter is that we developed this, like, very clear understanding that 
Like what a lot of people needed was just ideas for a Tuesday. You know, they're busy. Um, you know, they don't want to spend an hour and a half cooking dinner on a weeknight. Um, maybe they have young kids at home. Maybe they just have demanding professional life and they don't actually love to cook. Not everyone loves to cook. Um, and um, and those people needed better service from us. Um, and you, you, you just edit it in a cool way where you pick the right things and you say the right words. I mean, it really is encouraging. And I appreciate – wish you would write more, to be honest, because just talking to you, it just you've got a lot to say. Oh, thank you. I mean it. <laughs> they, I, I love writing and, and I always loved writing. And it was one of the only things I ever did um, where I would lose the time. You know, I would lose track of time. Such such is my love of sitting there and doing it. However, it's like really hard to just like sit and do it. And that's the procrastination, you know. Speaking of writing and writers, your team um, has greatly expanded in the past couple of years. You've scooped up like, amazing talents. Um, some are, are familiar for taste. Pre Krishna, Eric Kim, Christina Morales, Genevieve Coe as an editor, Brett Anderson. Um I just want to say and ask you, like, what makes a New York Times reporter and why do you hire somebody? Oh, such a good question. Um, and those are all extraordinary talents, right? Sure. Just and and extraordinarily skilled. You know, it's not just about talent. It's about skill and, and work and um, a, a really great New York Times reporter. First of all, you know, again, reporting is a craft. Reporting is a skill. You know, people who have really honed honed those skills and worked at their craft. Um, people who know how to spot a story, know how to shape a story for a national audience, um, are sort of fearless in thinking about stories. And, you know, you also have to be a good writer yeah. <laughs> and you have to file on deadline. So it, so it, it really is a, a tall order. You have to be able to work quickly, um, you know, and to be able to do that, you know, at the at the level that the Times wants to be working, you know, it's hard. Um, and also, these are people who all really understand the food space, whether it's home cooking or the food industry or cookbooks. Um, they all bring some sort of specialty in terms of, of how they approach the beat. It's a remarkable blend of skills. And you've said it so well. And I just want to add just the weight of having the New York Times as your byline is is there. And um, I've written for the Times. It, it, there's an, an absolute. Um, there's a serious dedication to to the byline and and really and the masthead, I guess you could say. Um, so I think the fact that you put out so much under this with this pressure is is remarkable. Thanks. Hey, you know it's it's the job, um, and it's very. It's too bad we're not all like physically in the newsroom um, yeah. at the office. I don't know if you've ever been there. Um, you should come. Uh, I've never been, open. actually. I've, I've seen it in film and television. So. <laughs> no, you should come when, when <laughs> And it's winning open. Pulitzers. <laughs> <laughs> when, when we can, like, have people come again, you yeah. should come. Cool. Um, there's just this tremendous energy there, especially at the end of the day when deadline is approaching. Um, it's really cool, and it really helps carry you along. How do you develop your, your stories with your staff? Um, do you? I know that you have. You said you have ideas meetings, um, and then so you self-generate, you and your editorial staff. But are you also accepting pitches from like a Priya Krishna uh, writer? Is she pitching you ideas or Eric? How's that work? Yeah, you know, well, it it comes about a, a couple different ways. Uh, first of all, if news is breaking, it's breaking, mm -hmm. and we're looking to see like, okay, which of our reporters can handle it right now? Oh, that's another skill. You have to be able to do breaking news, yeah. which is hard. You know, no one really does it in food. I mean, Eater does it really well too, but it's it's very rare. Yeah, and they look. There's not a ton of breaking news in food the way there is on like 
metro, you know, you you cover the city, you cover the courts or, you know, there's breaking news. Um, uh, We don't have as much breaking news, but it definitely Mm -hmm. happens. And and so if news comes, that's one thing. Um, Yeah, we have ideas meetings for sure. And assignments come out of that. I will say the best ideas you know, reliably come from reporters. And most of the time they're discussing them kind of with each other, with their mm-hmm. colleagues, with and principally, you know, with their editor. Mm-hmm. Um, and thinking about, okay, are we going to do this? When are we going to do it? Just working out the logistics and also sort of shaping it. And, you know, and that, that makes perfect sense to me that more ideas would come from reporters and writers than from editors. You know, COVID has, you know, mm-hmm. messed with this a little bit. But generally speaking, like, you don't find ideas at your desk. You don't find ideas mm-hmm. at the office. You can from reading. Obviously, the Internet, you know, <laughs> there there are stories there. Um, but really, the best ideas come from being out in the world and talking to people. We call it pre-reporting. And when we take on pitches, we, we require it. I mean, you're, what you're saying is what we experience every day. Like, we, we get an idea, but it's like you need to pre-report it. Mm-hmm. It's just so important. But it's you bring up COVID, and, and Anne and I struggle with this, too. It's like... You, you can't get out in the world as much. Yeah, no, it's really, really hard. It's I mean, hard. and that's why you get, you know, you get ideas from people. And, and and look, like, absolutely, you need to cover food culture online. And, like, you don't need to be out in the world to cover food culture online. But we don't just do that. We do all kinds of things. In order for, for the report to feel dynamic, you need people who are out in the world looking around, bringing those stories, you know, to you. The editors, I think— do um, a really good job of thinking about sort of like big picture lines of coverage, um, packages, big projects, um, sort of franchise ideas. Editors, I think, are really good at sort of conceiving of those and thinking about like, okay, like here is this, here is this bucket and like, what are we putting in it? And how do we want to think about that? Mm -hmm. Without spoiling any 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 surprises? What are, what are you working on right now? Are there any are there any topics that you feel like you've had across your desk this past couple of weeks that you want to talk about? Ah, uh, well, we like the element of surprise. Yes, <laughs> so as do we. we. Do, we do have a few really big things planned for 2022 that I can't yeah. I can't talk about yet. But there, I, this is tantalizing. It's gonna be great. Personally, of course, I you know the big stories to me this year are. Uh, the restaurant industry, yeah. what's going to happen, um, you know, and there's so many different storylines that thread through the restaurant industry and then uh, climate change um, and climate change coverage in food, you know, has persisted all these many years through COVID. But but there was this huge moment in 2019 where there was quite a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And then in 2020, the, the, the focus shifted because COVID w- was such a shock yeah. to the to the whole world, to the whole system. Um and, you know, all the while we've been producing stories that touch on climate change. But but I think in a more concerted way, we're going to come back to it this year. What makes a good climate change uh, food story? I, I ask this because we we are pitched them often. Um, we can't publish as much as you, but we try to publish um, as much climate change coverage. It is the biggest story of our generation right now in food. But we've struggled with finding an audience. And it's just sometimes... It's either people don't want to hear or read about certain topics. Sometimes it's uh, too uh, obscure. Or sometimes it's too, like, if you watch Don't Look Up, it's it's too far in the future. Um, so what makes a good story? Oh, you know, and I should say, too, the, the Times has a whole desk devoted to yeah, climate change coverage. you do. So, um, and they're always doing work. And there's climate coverage across 
almost all the desks at the Times in, in various ways. So so institutionally, you know, it's it's a priority and a big story, um, one among many, but but a priority. Um, you know, I think you're right. It's too abstract. Um, there's this impending sense of doom, but it's just too hard to wrap your heads around. And and and, and maybe that's just the limit of the human mind. I, I don't mm-hmm. know. But, um, you know, we see a lot of stories about waste and we see a lot of stories about agricultural shifts. I actually find the agricultural shift stories compelling because it's like, oh, my God, like Vermont is going to have the climate of North Carolina and yeah. what are they going to grow there? Things like that, you know, because I can it conjures an image in my mind. Um, I think a lot of I think something that I find missing from a lot of climate coverage is actually just actionable information. I think part of that is because yeah. actionable information is so confused and, and confusing mm-hmm. and, it, it you know, it's very easy to feel hopeless. It's like, well, what does it mean if I give up X, Y, or Z? Like, does that really make a difference? Mm-hmm. And somebody over here is saying, well, no, it's really about policy. But but you still want to do something. And, mm-hmm. and I think about that a lot. And I think about, okay, you know, we report. We also provide service. Like NYT cooking is service. Yeah. And how do we bring some of that thinking into how we think about climate change? Why it's such an interesting job that you have because you do blend pure service journalism and, and like how to put dinner on the table, quote unquote, with like big ideas and big swings. And it's remarkable. I want to know outside of the time staff, are there anybody – is there anybody in food writing that you have enjoyed? Anybody on Twitter even? Um, I know you don't have time to, to read everybody, but I, you know, I always want to give editors a chance to kind of give a little shout out. Well, I mean, I think Helen Rosner at The New Yorker is just like a genius. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> and, yeah. and like big fan, friend, everything fan of the show. Said. I don't I don't really know. I mean, I've, I don't really know Helen. I've like met her once or twice in passing. Um, so I'm just a fan mm-hmm. um, and everything she does, even, you know, She'll post an Instagram story about something and she'll something that is kind of percolating, but it's in the air and she finds a way to talk about it and in ways that are compelling and funny. And, you know, she's she's just a genius. Um, I really admire her work. Um, Salejo. Yeah. I mean, I think it's been really thrilling to see what Salejo is doing in San Francisco. I mean, she's just doing the job totally differently from anyone who's done mm-hmm. the job before. Those are the two people who really come to mind. Who I, lo- who I don't who I don't work with. I I love all the New York Times. Yeah, writers. as do we. No, I think Soleil <laughs> deserves a shout out. Yeah. Um, and I think she is doing it differently. I think the way she covers San Francisco and the Bay Area as a critic jumps outside of like just reviewing restaurants. And you know, she's extremely creative. I have to just say that outside of having great taste and just really doing the job and doing putting in the work, great taste. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I mean, she's really conceived of the job differently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, it's I don't. It's really it's really exciting um, to to sort of track like oh wow you know yeah. just just the way she's doing it um, I also I read quite a lot I mean mostly like in my free time I'm, I'm not reading about food I you know I, yeah. I read a lot of fiction I read you know I, I there are a lot of times writers who don't work for food who I'm just kind of obsessed with and I'll read <laughs> anything they write um, so yeah, I love that answer. Let's talk about your own home cooking because I want to uh, dive into your passionate home cook. You say you're not professional, but I think by now you know your way around a home kitchen. Um, so in general, what excites you personally as a home cook? And then I guess the second part of the question is as an editor, um, are there any home cooking concepts or trends that you really want to acknowledge as like something you're interested in? 
So what excites me as a home cook is just the days when I feel excited to cook. And I only say that because, you know, of COVID, I'm, I'm, I mean, there were days where I was like, I never want to walk into this kitchen. Oh, my gosh. Right? Oh. So, like, when I start to feel excited, that alone is like, <laughs> yeah, you know. And um, I do feel like my, my – I was pretty confident before COVID. I do feel like my cooking has gotten a lot better just because yeah. cooking is another craft and it just rewards <laughs> repetition. Yeah. And I see that in my own cooking. I'm, I, I see, like, I see the improvements and I'm really excited about them. And they're, like, tiny things. And they're easy things for a professional mm-hmm. cook. Like, nobody would even think about this if you're a professional cook. But for – me, like I'm self-taught. I'm a home cook. It's mm-hmm. it's great. Um, what I'm excited about. So, <laughs> I am in a certain exclusive bean club. <laughs> oh right. <laughs> that <laughs> the Rancho Gordo Bean Club, which I coincidentally happened to sign up for before the pandemic. So. I'm just like constantly looking in my cabinet and being like, oh my god, I have all these things to use up. And some of these are beans I've cooked with forever, and mm-hmm. some of them I like never cooked with and never would have bought myself. I just wouldn't have occurred to me. And so I feel like I'm constantly kind of looking at what's in my cabinet and being like, all right. I mean, it's the same way. I think people used to talk about their CSA boxes. Yeah. Um, I also, you know, um, my husband and I decided a while ago, like, hey, we really have to eat less meat, which Mm -hmm. is really, that was a personal choice. Um, Truly Mm -hmm. wouldn't push it on anybody. No. Um, And I, I realized pretty recently that like, we used to really have to think about it. I, you know, I, I, might not shock you to learn I do all the meal planning in, in our yeah. home. Um, and I definitely yeah. Um my husband can cook actually, but um we're this is revealing. People often assume that my husband can't cook. That's <laughs> bullshit, man. It is That's bullshit. bullshit. It shouldn't be the case. I think that a healthy partnership, you know, you're you're, yeah. you're chipping in and that's a modern household and Yeah, yeah, yeah. People assume he's like, Oh, he must not cook. I was like, Cooks. Um, yeah, dude. Uh, so, um, but I do, I do, I do plan the meals, and I'm happy to do it. And I'd rather do that than like you know, yeah. clean the bathroom. So, um, I uh, in the beginning when thinking about changing our eating habits, I used to have to think about it a lot. And I, I realized pretty recently that I don't have to think about it much anymore. Like the transition has been made, and it's just mm-hmm. the way a habit sort of settles into your life and and that was actually a really cool moment for me to think like oh like we're there we're not cooking as, as much meat right we're yeah. there yeah 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 it used to be something i had to think about and now it's just like i look at you know what i bought i look at what i'm thinking about cooking and i'm like ah you know and and that feels good it's you a know? great feeling and, yeah. and like uh, let's go back to the beans because i'm also a, a rancho gordo head myself i'm not in the club I've, i am on the, the waiting list but i do have quite a bit of stock and so what i i've been doing the 15 minute hard boil so after like a two to three hours soak mm-hmm. i never plan like 12 to 24 hours at a time i do a hard boil uh for 15 minutes but backing up i usually do like onion and and i've been doing lemon a lot and just searing mm-hmm. lemon peel yeah um and shallot um and then a lot of spices and and variety mostly chilies um ancho um so are you 15 minute hard boil uh, let's talk beans let's go there um so i've been futzing around with this for a little bit because for a while i was just like putting them in the instant pot and oh, then word. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. just putting them in the instant pot and figuring it out and cooking. A, I would cook a lot. I would cook the whole pound. Now I'm just cooking a half pound at a time, but it's pretty wasteful when you go to the full pound. Yeah. And you just... Yeah. Well, you know, I use them all up, but yeah, yeah. by the time it's, we're done with them, I'm like, Oh my God, I don't eat those anymore. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. So but I was doing the instant pot, but 
You know, you get really inconsistent results with the Instant Pot, um, and I have finally accepted that. And I and I do it sometimes, like even, I don't know, two nights ago. can't even remember what I was going to cook for dinner, but for some reason it did not come to fruition. Yeah. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to go downstairs. I'm going to put the black beans in the Instant Pot. We have tortillas. We have chilies. We have this. We have that. You know, put together a pretty tasty dinner um and the beans were fine you know but now i'm doing like when i cook them on the stovetop i actually do try to soak them i know you don't have to i do yeah um and then i'll do like a 10 minute hard boil and then i'll go to a low simmer and i'll cover the pot mm-hmm. oh and i do salt i know some people don't i know this is controversial you salt right away or you don't you don't salt at the end you salt before I salt, or salt the, through. I salt the cooking water. Yeah, you know, I salt the cooking water, um, and then I, you know, I salt at the end. I'm not salting all the way through, but some people, yeah, would say don't salt. Some people would say don't salt until the very last moment, or even upon serving, and let the diner, the 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 person eating, salt. But I'm with you. I, I need to salt throughout, or at least at the beginning. Um, I love Steve Sando. Have you re- have you met him? I've never met him. No, I would love to meet him. I want to meet him. I, I it's not just because I want to be in his club. <laughs> He's like a celebrity in my world. <laughs> he really by, is. By my world, I mean my home. Yeah, your home. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a few more questions. I want to know uh, your favorite food is ice cream. Is that real or is that just from Twitter? Your Twitter bio. <laughs> no, that's or real. Or your website. Okay. No, no, that's totally real. Like. Isn't everyone's favorite food ice cream? No, but that's that's okay. <laughs> I love it. So tell me why um, why ice cream? You've actually covered ice cream quite a bit in the New York Times. <laughs> now it makes sense. I really sense. love ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what makes good ice cream? Okay, we'll get there. Let's go there. What, what makes, makes good yeah, ice cream? Yeah. Oh my god! I, oh, that's too big a question. It's I know. like you're asking me about God. I, I know. anyway. I, um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> what makes good ice cream? I love ice cream that is is very creamy and I don't like delicate flavors. I mean, I do like delicate flavors, but I'm totally cool with ice cream just like beating you over the head with the flavors. Like I uh, I used to live quite close to the um, first Ample Hills location. Uh, <laughs> in Gowanus or Park Slope? Park in um, the one on Vanderbilt and Prospect yeah, Van- Heights. I used, to, I used to live near there and um, oh man, <laughs> I go there a lot. And, and you know, and then go on a soap and we go there. Anyway, so um, that really creamy, lots of mix-ins, you know, um, not super sweet. You know, I'm not like a Cold Stone person, um, but, uh, oh, that sort of silky, super premium. You know, mm-hmm. I like eggy ice cream, too, um, uh, not Philadelphia style. Like, yeah. I like, I like, like, an eggy. Yeah. I love that. And you, I love that your team mix in your team like Ben and Jerry's not, you know, you, know, you like the the chunky stuff. Yeah. Hey, look, like <laughs> I, you know, the pandemic gave me time to meditate on things like <laughs> what's my preferred vanilla ice cream. Yeah. And like you really kind of can't beat Haagen-Dazs. Haagen-Dazs. I know, right? Have you had the Ben and Jerry's vanilla? I shouldn't I comment on specific good. brands. I will. And it's not good. <laughs> I, but, you know, but like also like Haagen-Dazs chocolate peanut butter, like, oh. So good. I uh, interviewed Ina Garten long ago, and she said she melts down a full pint of Haagen-Dazs to make creme anglaise. It's like basically the same thing. Oh my God. I think that's genius, and I think that is the perfect ice cream, the Haagen-Dazs vanilla. She's so fabulous. Just yeah. hearing that just made my heart beat a little faster. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's what, that's what I want to do. <laughs> she's great. 
she's, she is great. She's great, and <laughs> she's got books coming along. She she's just a, a real national treasure. And we were doing a uh, Anna and I are going to uh, riff about banned words. Okay. Because we have our list of banned words on Taste. Do you have a banned word list for the New York Times? Oh, ba- I thought you meant band B A N D. Okay, so I'll do that. Again. And I was like, "Are you naming your band?" <laughs> <laughs> banned words, like, like like the words that are banned. Like we do not like one of them is unctuous. We just cannot print the word unctuous in in taste. Like unctuous is not happening. Like it is. There's like something we put into our CMS where it does not allow. This is a great question in part. Because um, we were talking about this not so long ago in the Food Desk Slack channel at work. You know, we have we have a Slack channel, as everyone does. Um, <laughs> so my colleague Patrick Farrell, who is um, an editor on food and like a longtime editor. Shout out to Times. Patrick Farrell, of course. Shout out to – do you know Patrick? I've never met Patrick Farrell. I know of him and he's an amazing editor. He is an amazing editor. Yeah. I've heard it said that he is one of the best editors of the New York Times. And like I believe that. And also Patrick is just like a lovely colleague and a generous soul. Yeah. Um, he's just amazing. Um, so anyway, Patrick, longtime editor, <laughs> yeah. has a list of words – that he does not want in the food section. And it came to light recently that Priya Krishna, who has worked with Patrick for a really long time now, he's been her editor for a long time, like kept a running list of those words. <laughs> like nice. words can't remember like words Patrick hates. Or, anyway, so if I'm remembering right, okay, Lux, <laughs> foodie. We don't like foodie. Um Oh, my God. Luscious also we try to avoid. Luscious does get in. Lux, however, is totally banned. Oh, my God. I need to think of other ones. I'm so sorry. I can't think of Those are really good head. ones. I think Lux and Luscious. Um, we, I think Moist is definitely on the edge. I mean, Moist means something specific, so we have to print it. But our, our other one, I think, is Bistro when referring to a restaurant that is not a French origin bistro bistro mm-hmm. is calling it like a Vietnamese bistro or calling a restaurant a concept oh my god <laughs> please like banned you know banned <laughs> it's a restaurant or a deli <laughs> like it's that's like that's like use a use a, a noun use a yeah. different noun um yeah. concepts so the times actually in the style book doesn't want you to use the word launch um mm-hmm. even for a website mm-hmm. um launching is for rockets it is not for companies digital it media is, <laughs> it is not for restaurant concepts so um, one thing you won't see in the New York Times unless it has snuck through is the idea that you would like launch a restaurant or launch a takeout business. Very cool. Uh, yeah. I think of uh, along the lines, I, I think pr- program, when you say something has a program, yeah. like a, a really excellent olive oil program. Yeah. Not happening. We don't yeah, we don't really do that. We I think we do wine program. I'm pretty sure we do wine program, but no, 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 no more programming. And also, um, at some point curators yeah. left the world of the arts and moved throughout the world of <laughs> culture. <everything>. Word. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Emily, we ask all guests in the Taste Podcast if there was a dream food book or cookbook project that you could work on personally without a deadline or a budget. Um, it was just you and this project. What would that cookbook be? So, and partly this is COVID, right? But I think I I would have said this anyway. Like, what I want to do is <laughs> I would want it to be a book or some other project where I just travel around the world eating and like at a totally leisurely pace. <laughs> and 
And I just go for as long as I need to go. And like, you know, I'm like, bye. I'm so I'm just I have to go. It's for this project. I have to. I'm sorry. I can't help it. I have to go travel around the world and eat at a leisurely pace. (laughs) That is totally what I would want to do. The other one. So I love sweets. I mean, we just talked about ice cream for a while, but. I really, really love to bake. And ever since I was a kid, I just like I have the craziest sweet tooth. Um, and, um, you know, I, I did always think like, oh, it'd be really fun to do like a pastry course, like to really learn how to bake in, in that kind of way. And it would be really awesome to work on a cookbook, like a baking cookbook where everything was delicious and really tasty and it magically just turned out great like the first time and there was not a lot of like extensive testings or revision and just like a magical book of treats <laughs> that I baked and and recipes and you know I hey look like I so I'm not a recipe developer right I don't I don't do that and I have such reverence for that work it is so hard to do that work well. I've, I have so much admiration for the great cookbook authors I know, the recipe writers I know, the recipe the ones I don't know and I really admire, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't think I could write that dessert book. But in a magic plane. Yeah. Like, yes, that is what I would I love do. that answer. It's like you you want to have the perfect brownie, but like on the first shot, not for like 17th Dory's Greenspan, like 17th draft, which is obviously what it takes her to do it. Yeah. Oh, my God. She's a legend. She's yeah. a legend. Yeah. Emily Weinstein, thank you for joining the Taste <laughs> Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> this is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com. And make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.